We are ready, Mayor. Mayor Pickelar, thank you everyone for joining us for the May 18th City Commission meeting. Before we get going, Woodrow O'Neill, our Chief Communications Officers, will give us some guidelines for the meeting. Thank you, Mayor. Good evening, everyone. Um, just want to share some housekeeping items for this virtual meeting. This meeting is being broadcast and recorded on the City of Lawrence YouTube channel and uh, Channel 25 cable. The public chat function is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. When you are not participating in the mute meeting, please mute your microphone. When you are participating in the meeting, please keep your video on. When you are not participating in the meeting, please turn your video off. You will still be able to hear the meeting. You can turn your video back on when you are participating. Turning your video off when you are not participating allows the active meeting participants to be seen on the screen. If you have any trouble, please just send me a chat. The city reserves the right to mute microphones and or turn off people's video to minimize distractions during the meeting. Please remember to state your name every time you speak for the benefit of anybody who may be listening remotely. And now I'll return the meeting to Mayor Finkeldye. Mayor Finkeldye, thank you, Porter. I will take roll call now. Vice Mayor Shipley. Here. Um, Commissioner Ananda. Here. Commissioner Lawson. Here. Commissioner Bully. Here. Mayor Finkeldye, am I coming across okay? Yes. Okay. Some of my, everyone was a bit slow to answer there and it was freezing up. I just wasn't, wasn't sure if it's me. Let me know if I, if I freeze up here. Um, we'll go ahead and have Sherry Riedemann, our city clerk, give us procedures for tonight's meeting. Thank you, Mayor. Um, I'm just going to... Uh, provide again just a few reminders to everyone um, commissioners please remember to state your name and title each time you speak uh, after a motion is made and seconded mayor please make sure you call on commissioners individually to provide their vote and announce whether the motion carried and the count of the vote city staff please remember to state your name and title each time you speak when the mayor calls for public comment on an item, individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. The raise hand function may appear in different places on your Zoom menu depending on the device you are using and which version of Zoom you have. Individuals will be called upon by name in the order they appear on the meeting host screen. When you are called on, pl please unmute and state your name. Comments will be limited to three minutes. When the mayor calls for in-person public comment, individuals should raise their hand to indicate they wish to speak, and staff present will direct you to the podium to speak following social distancing and safety protocols. Please state your name before speaking, and comments will be limited to three minutes. Thank you. Thank you, Sherry. As we move into the agenda, we do have two executive sessions on tonight's agenda. When the motion is made to recess into an executive session, the commission will leave this Zoom meeting and go into a separate Zoom meeting. When the time scheduled for the executive session has elapsed, the commission will return to this Zoom meeting and reconvene the regularly scheduled meeting. First item is to approve the agenda. 
the city commission reserves the right to amend supplement to reorder the agenda during the meeting. Any commissioner wish to amend the agenda? If not, I look for a motion. Commissioner Ananda, I move to approve the agenda. Commissioner Larson, second. Mayor Finkel, I. There's a motion by Commissioner Ananda, a second by Commissioner Lawson. Commissioner Ananda? Aye. Commissioner Lawson? Aye. Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. Commissioner Bully? Aye. Mayor Finkel, Aye passes five to zero. We'll now move to the consent agenda. All matters listed on the consent agenda are considered under one motion and will be approved as one motion. There'll be no separate discussion on those items. If discussion is desired, the, the, that item will be removed from the consent agenda and will be considered separately. Members of the public wishing to speak to an item that has been pulled off the consent agenda will be limited to three minutes for those comments. Does any commissioner wish to pull an item off the consent agenda? Um, seeing none, is, is Michael Allman present? Oh, there he is. I thought he had wanted to pull one off. Michael, do you want to pull off B6B based upon your letter? Uh, yes, thank you, Mayor. This is Michael Allman. Okay. If any other person would like to pull an item off the consent agenda, any member of the public would like to pull an item off the consent agenda, please raise your hand using the raise your hand feature. Or if you're present, let Sherry know and she'll call upon you. Is there an item on the consent agenda that either one of you would like to hold for discussion? Okay. Uh, Sherry Riedemann, City Clerk, uh, there are no other items to be pulled there. Mayor Finkeldy, thank you. I'd look for a motion on the consent agenda um, other than B6B. This is Commissioner Larson. I move to approve the consent agenda with the exception of B6B. Chair Ananda, second. Mayor Fingalai, there's a motion by Commissioner Lawson, a second by Commissioner Ananda. Commissioner Lawson? Aye. Commissioner Ananda? Aye. Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. Commissioner Bully? Aye. Mayor Fingalai, aye. Passes five to zero. We'll now um, go to B6B. Uh, Michael, you had pulled this off the agenda. You also provided us a letter. Um, but um, please go ahead. You have three minutes. Thank you, Mayor. This is Michael Allman. I'm the uh, chair of the Multimodal Transportation Program with Sustainability Action Network, who I'm speaking for this evening. Um, the item has to do with the annual street maintenance program by MSO. And this issue at this point is a contract with Sun to award it to Sunflower Paving. Um, I had submitted with Sustainability Action Network five proposals for bikeways back in February for the Capital Improvement Program. And I'm concerned that there are conflicting bikeways, actually white stripe bicycle lanes in the street maintenance program that would, um, as I would think, foreclose the possibility of this two of the CIP bikeways being even considered um, on June 8th, when you look at the CIP. 
So we're requesting that you delete three line items from the contract that have to do with the white stripe bicycle lanes, line item 25A, 25L, and 25M. Um, white stripe bicycle lanes basically are considered unsafe by most bicyclists, national statistics. Um, the Multimodal Transportation Commission has um, made statements that they prefer not to do them. They're basically an attractive nuisance. Uh, people who don't understand how dangerous they are could be attracted to use them, but they're listed as level of comfort number five, the worst comfort level of any bicycle facility. And in these two uh, proposals from street maintenance, Lakeview Road and Noria Road, uh, the engineer actually admits that there'll be no improvement in the comfort level. Basically, a white stripe bicycle lane is not only dangerous, it's not useful. People will not use it, except for maybe the performance bicyclists who will bicycle practically anywhere. Uh, so we would hope that there would be ample consideration June 8th for um, for useful and safe bicycle facilities on these two streets. So that's why we're requesting that the white stripe bicycle lanes be deleted from this contract. I stand for any questions if you have any. Thank you. Mayor Finkeldeye, thank you, Michael. Bring it back to the commission. Um, I would be interested in, looks like Dave turned his camera on, so uh, a response to that. I mean, I do think we do not want to probably foreclose opportunities going forward, but Dave, can you go ahead and give your thoughts? Sure, Dave Cronin, city engineer. <clears throat> uh, so when we put together the annual street maintenance plan, we do uh, review the streets on the plan. Um, uh, in, in regards to the, the uh, city bikeway plan, which is an adopted plan. Um, and as uh, Mr. Allman has indicated, uh, you know, that plan speaks to level of comfort, which is rated one through five. And so generally um, uh, we're trying to achieve a level of comfort three or below on projects. Um, that that plan's particularly uh, relevant to uh, CIP reconstruction projects where we, um, you know, we always try to achieve that three or below. On routine maintenance projects, um, we try to achieve the best level of comfort possible within the, basically the limits of the project. So on <clears throat> streets where we're doing mill and overlay type work, uh, we have enough uh, street width to narrow the travel lanes and provide uh, a dedicated uh, striped bike lane. Or if we don't have enough width for a dedicated five foot wide bike lane, um, uh, we use sharrows to indicate um, uh, that uh, it's, it's a bike route and to expect um, you know that cyclists will be using the street also. So while neither of those um, uh, may improve the level of comfort. They are low-cost improvements that we can uh, do with uh, street maintenance uh, dollars while we're doing uh, maintenance work. And uh, those type of uh, improvements um, 
while aren't the um, maybe the best in the long term are good short term improvements that uh, add to uh, our the connectivity of our bike facilities um, and um, are, uh, in our opinion, an improvement over not providing anything. Um, so uh, the, the bike plan uh, speaks to um, speaks to this uh, on uh, maintenance projects that uh, these low lower cost improvements, uh, whatever we can do to um, uh, within the uh, constraints of uh, limited funding and scope are are desired. Um, and I guess <clears throat> if there are any questions on specific streets, I'd be willing to answer those. But uh, hopefully that generally gives you an understanding of uh, our approach. Mayor Finkelguy, I think that that does help. I guess my question would be if... Um, if the, uh, I mean, let's say we do go with one of the CIP suggestions that's coming forward and we want to do some different bike route, and maybe it's a question for Andy, not you. I mean, is that, an, do we have an ability to amend this contract if we decide to do something different with that road? This is uh, Dave Cronin, CD engineer. Um, we would have the uh, possibility of amending the contract if we, uh, you know, needed to work something out with the contractor. Um, I, I guess I would also add um, a little more context on our um, bikeway plan and the priority and secondary networks that we have. So the standalone dedicated bike ped funding or funds that we have are prioritized with our non-motorized prioritization policy uh, that goes through the multimodal transportation commission and those funds are um, prioritized to those primary and secondary routes in the plan um, none of the um, uh, streets that are in this year street maintenance plan are on that uh, primary or secondary network in the plan and you know we don't anticipate um, any of these streets um, being considered for uh, those bike ped funds in the near future. And, um, but if you were to um, recommend funding a, a, a citizen project that is not a priority or secondary network uh, project with the uh, CIP, um, we could uh, amend the contract or build the facility. Uh, what we're doing is just paint. It's a very low cost treatment. Um, on Noria Road, uh, there is no curb and gutter. And so we're, and there would be white paint along the edge line anyway. We are just narrowing the lane. Um, on Lakeview Drive, we are uh, putting down paint and some, and some bike symbols. Um, so um, I, you know, I don't, foresee us doing a more substantial improvement on those streets uh, or recommending those projects over other projects that are on our priority sec or secondary network because those would essentially we'd be funding projects that are not priorities um, in our in our bike plan 
Um, so, um, I, you know, I don't anticipate that, but if, um, if, if we needed to make changes, um, we are flexible if the work has not been done, I guess, to answer your question. Mayor Finkel, I, I guess he has to ask the question a different way. If in two weeks we consider one of these projects on the CIP and we say, you know, what is staff's position on it? I would expect you to say some of the things you just said, but I, I guess I would be disappointed if the answer was, and we can't do it because we already approved the contract two weeks ago. I mean, I just want to be sure it's open for discussion. Dave Cronin, city engineer. I would tell you the same things that I just told you. And, um, um, that, Good. yeah. Anything like that? That's I guess that's what I wanted to hear. Other questions or comments? Commissioner Larson, um, yeah, that was was one concern I had is that, that if we were to move forward with this, that it would potentially slow down any potential changes that for um, actual um, providing better 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 uh, bike lanes, you know, on these roads. And so it sounds to me that um, we can still change it. Um, in the CIP, if it if we get to that point, this is Commissioner Bully. Um, I've, I've got a question for David. Uh, what I understand you to be saying is that when we do a maintenance project, we really don't have an opportunity to change the width of the street and add a separated bike facility. However, when we do a construction or a reconstruction, that opportunity presents itself. So we could save some money on concrete for the street and use it or, you know, other, use those funds and other things for a dedicated bikeway. Is that an accurate reflection of what you said? Dave Cronin, city engineer. Uh, yes, that is accurate. Okay. And since this is simply a maintenance project, we don't have the opportunity to change the width of the street. Dave Cronin, city engineer, I would say, I would say yes, that is the way that we approach our maintenance projects um, within the scope of our maintenance dollars and not, and not expanding the street and, or, or adding shared use paths by bicycle facilities. So if, if it was a, you know, I guess I would, I would add that if, one of these streets was in our five-year plan, a project that was soon to, you know, come up or a priority street. We would we would give a strong consideration to including that in a maintenance project or another project uh, to get the economies uh, uh, of scale to do that work. If there were if there were economies, uh, depending on what maintenance type of work the contractor is doing. So, um, uh, so it is possible and. Um, again, I guess I would say, you know, with these maintenance dollars, we're, we're focusing them on street maintenance and um, to do uh, above and beyond is not really the intention of the program. Yeah. And this Commissioner Mulligan, I guess, you know, my concern is I'm very much interested in having separated facilities for bicyclists. And when we continue to do stretches of road like this, the stretches of street with with the the bike lanes, it seems like you know as Michael has pointed out, we're kind of precluding putting in separate facilities. 
So I'm very much interested in trying to figure out how we can you know, accomplish separating bicycles from you know other vehicle vehicular traffic as we go forward with our with our street projects. Thanks, Mayor Shipley. Um, I agree. Thank you, Commissioner Boley, for saying it so well. Um, I wonder um, um, how many years after this maintenance will it be before um, these three items would come up again um, in a priority for a CIP project? Uh, Dave Cronin, city engineer. Um, I, I think it, I would anticipate it would be a while before any of these streets are prioritized with bike ped funding. Now, you can, this commission could always approve a citizen request project that is outside of, you know, our, our program and uh, decide to uh, fund it ahead of other projects or other um, uh, potential projects that are on the network. Um, so that would be at your discretion. But if we're following our, our prior, prioritization criteria, um, it, would, it would be a while before any of these streets rise to the level of making the substantial improvement to meet the level of comfort. Uh, Vice Mayor Shipley. So yeah, these are, um, I mean, these are all different streets, so they have different patterns, but, um, you know, one might be 10 years, one might be five years, one might be 20 years. I think it's um, fair um, to consider how long it would be um, for, for the public to know, um, to have an expectation of when they could expect major changes based on the parameters you just described. So, um, you know, like, what is it, Lake, Lakeview, what are, uh, uh, Riverview? That, I mean, it seems like that could be a long time. <laughs> um, uh, um, yeah, um, I, I can't expect you to, to guess very closely, but, um, knowing, for example, my street wasn't milled and overlaid and, and done for over 20 years. So could we expect some of these to also go over 20 years? Dave Cronin, City Engineer. Um, I can't speak to the timing of getting back to these streets to do maintenance, but I think the question would be when's, you know, I guess, when's the next opportunity to do something more substantial than what we are doing, um, you know, uh, with, within the, within the constraints of the maintenance project. So, uh, for instance, on the Riverview road, if, um, you know, that would, uh, to achieve this uh, level of comfort, you would need to have a shared use path or a adjacent cycle track, some adjacent facility outside the roadway, um, that would, it could be done with a maintenance project, but, um, you know, it, it would take dedicated, dedicated funding to do that. And it's, you know, it is not on our priority or a secondary network Our five year, um, bike way, uh, bike ped 
plan with those program dollars um, doesn't come close to completing all of the gaps in the primary network, let alone the secondary network. There's there's a, a, a long list of projects uh, that, that that we could do before we got to River V Road. So I can't give you a date that we'd get to it in uh, 10 or 20 years. I can tell you it's we won't get to it in five. Thank you, Dave. Randy, did you have something you wanted to say? This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. I just wanted to point out, you know, if we do enter into an agreement, agreements can be amended, but it always takes two. So the other side would have to be in agreement with it. If we agreed a certain amount of money, a certain amount of work, and they are not willing to amend it, then we we might be on the we might be on the hook for that amount of money. So, so basically, it takes two parties to amend an agreement. I think I do certainly understood. I do think if we did adopt one of these CIP sort of things, I would imagine you'd be more money, not less. So they might be interested. <laughs> okay. Any other comments, questions, motions? Commissioner Nanda, did you open it for public comment? Mayor Finkelai, I did not. Thank you for that. If any other member of the public would like to speak on this item, please raise your hand, use the raise your hand feature, or if you're in person, you can let Sherry know and she'll call upon you. Chris Flowers. Hi, this is um, Chris Flowers and I'm I'm going to speak about bike boulevards later, and I don't think this, I don't like the sounds of this, like if it's not in our priorities, like what if we don't do this, what does that mean for the people who are using the roads, like the motorists, like are we going to, I don't know, I, I just don't like, and also shouldn't we wait until the, the, we get like results on how the bike boulevard we did build has worked because um, one thing about bike boulevards is that our city has proven that they can't come in under budget with one. So I would just uh, hold off on this. I don't like the sounds of it if it's not in our, our prioritization. Thank you. Did you want to provide comment on this item? You already commented. Uh, there's no other public comment on this item there. Mayor Fingal die. Thank you. Um, okay, bring it back to the commission for comments, questions, motions. Bueller, Bueller. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I do think, you know, I, I want to be able to consider, you know, the things on the CIP. Um, you know, I feel looking at these line items that it's a very um, small number. I guess if we're going to change the policy about the about putting 
lines, um, you know, of mulkings when we're doing maintenance as a level five. And if we want to change our policy to say um, that we're not going to do that going forward because they're not safe for the reasons um, Michael talked about, I don't think we should do, do that on this consent item. I think it should be done coming back to us in a change to our policy through the MPO and the, and the, and the Bicycle Advisory Board. As I understand our policy, um, you know, that's what our policy is now. Staff brought us a plan consistent with that policy. You know, it certainly sounds like maybe we should consider that policy in the future, whether or not we do want to do that. I think that should be done in the context of the policy, not on this item. Commissioner Larson, I, I wouldn't disagree with that because I do, since this is just a maintenance project, um, I'm not a big fan of bike share um, markings, but um, this is what we've got right now and it is a maintenance program. I did have a um, question for Randy when he indicated that if we were to remove these line items that that the Sunflower would have to agree to it. So on, on our contracts, when we're doing a scope of work, do we not have the authority to change the scope of work? This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. You know, if we sign off on the agreement that we're going to do it, it we're, we're, you know, we're giving our work. They'd have to agree to take the less money or not do it or whatever it is that we would have to do. But we would be contractually bound to pay them for that work. Now we can alter it, but they have to agree to that. So, I'm going to agree with uh, the mayor on this. Um, you know, I stated my concerns about you know, wanting separated facilities. We're, you know, in the midst of budget season and the competing priorities are coming at us fast and furious. So um, I would support this with the idea that, you know, we need to figure out a way to make progress on separating the bicycle facilities from, from the streets. Mayor Finkel, are anyone willing to make a motion then for further comments? This is Commissioner Bowley. I move that we award bid number B2113 to Sunflower Paving Inc. Authorize the city manager to execute the construction contract in the amount of $4,421,504.50 and authorize a purchase order in the amount of $4,700,000 to allow contingency funds for the project. May I think like Commissioner Lawson, did you second that? I'm sorry, I did. Commissioner Larson, second. Mayor Finkel, aye. There's a motion by Commissioner Bully, a second by Commissioner Lawson. Commissioner Bully? Aye. Commissioner Lawson? Aye. 
Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. Commissioner Ananda? Aye. Mayor Finkel, aye. aye. Passes five to zero. We're now moving to public comment. Public, the public is allowed to speak on items or issues that are not scheduled for discussion on the agenda. As a general practice, the commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on items presented during this time. Individuals should address all comments and questions to the commission. Each person will be limited to three minutes. If you're interested in making general public comment on items not on the agenda, please raise your hand using the raise your hand feature. Or if you're present, let Sherry know and she will call upon you. Chris Flowers. Chris Flowers. Hi, um, this is Chris Flowers, and I'm on location for my public comment. Um, last Friday, the city tweeted out um, about members of the, what is it, multi-module um, transportation team taking a, a trip to the Bike Boulevard, but then the picture they used wasn't the Bike Boulevard. So I'm here on 21st. I just wanted to show the city what the actual bike boulevard looks like. And it's not what they showed in the in their picture. My problem is the picture they showed was um the the cyclists were using a sidewalk, which that's what I I agree. I would love that if the bike boulevard was cyclists using a multi-use pathway and out of the the street but what we build is not that and i think it's kind of the opposite of that in which it's trying to keep motorists from using the the street so i'm just wondering if they purposely did that because they don't want people to associate the bike boulevard with what it actually is and want to and want people associate it with something that it's not so i would just like the city to to redo that tweet and come out here and take a picture of the barriers at 21st and Osdale and start promoting the bike boulevard for bike month with that, with, with this piece of, you know, what, so that's just my two cents. Thank you. Sherilyn Wells. Hello, this is Sherilyn Wells. Um, I wanted to speak about crisis intervention. There was a nice presentation at the county, but I want to talk about it's it. This is about the police. Uh, they they had it sounded like a really good plan, but somebody called the police recently about a citizen distress around the area of Tenth and Rhode Island, and nobody thought that criminal activity was going on or there were any threats being made. They were just concerned about someone sitting halfway in the street. <clears throat> and I guess when the police showed up, uh, I don't know all the circumstances, but kind of manhandled the guy. And it's concerning if when somebody shows up for a uh, welfare check, if people are getting manhandled. So, Thank you very much. Is there anyone else on Zoom who would like to make general public comment?
did you want to have any comments? Okay. Uh, Mayor, no one else has indicated they want to provide comment. Mayor Finkelai, thank you. We'll now move to the regular agenda. Um, regular agenda item number one is to consider authorizing the city manager to submit a commitment of participation to KDOT um, for the 6th and K-10 interchange project. I don't know if Dave has this one as well, or looks like he's turning his camera on. So Dave, go ahead. Good evening again, Dave Cronin, <clears throat> city engineer. Um, so the, the state of Kansas has a new transportation program uh, that they uh, came out with last year called the Eisenhower Legacy Transportation Program, or IKE. Um, and this new program, it's a 10-year program, but a little different uh, from their last 10-year program, which was called T-Works, in the fact that they are um, relooking uh, every couple of years at adding projects um, new projects into the development pipeline and, and um, then moving other projects forward to construction. So um, I guess the goal of, of their new program is to be a little more flexible and adaptive uh, going forward with um, the potential for uh, revenue changes that may occur uh, through the length of the program. Um, and so kind of, um, you know, along those lines, uh, with their new program, they're looking um, to uh, leverage local participation on projects uh, uh, from from communities to move uh, projects forward from the uh, what they call the development pipeline to the construction pipeline. Um, so when the uh, program was announced last year, there were four projects in Douglas County that uh, were uh, moved forward into the development pipeline, um, sixth and K ten interchange improvements. Um, the West Leg SLT, South Orange Traffic Way improvements, which are split into two projects, but some would consider as one that's between uh, I-70 and uh, Iowa or US-59. And then there's a uh, expansion project on uh, US-56 in uh, Southern Douglas County, uh, west of Baldwin. Um, <clears throat> so those four projects in the last year, uh, uh, KDOT's proceeded with uh, design plans um, on those and recently uh, contacted the city to see if we've considered uh, contributing to either uh, 6th and K-10 or the South Orange Trafficway projects. Um, and in particular, uh, indicated that the 6th and K-10 project would be under consideration to move forward to the construction pipeline uh, this summer. Uh, so they're looking to announce uh, projects to move forward here uh, pretty soon. Um, and uh, also they indicated that the uh, South Lawrence uh, Westlake projects would uh, likely be uh, considered at the earliest to move forward uh, next summer in 2022. So um, here to speak tonight uh, a little bit about the 6th and K-10 interchange project and an opportunity that we can uh, work to partner uh, to uh, contribute some local funds to uh, see if the project would help accelerate that to construction. Um, 
So if I could uh, share my screen, um, I will see if I can bring up the attachments. I'll walk, kind of walk through uh, the project. All right, um, let me zoom out a little bit. So you, hopefully you can see this. This is the um, very preliminary concept plan for the sixth and K-10 interchange improvements that are attached to the memo. Um, <clears throat> this project uh, really began in design um, about seven or eight years ago. Um, so. KDOT did some preliminary review of turning movements here at the interchange to accommodate future long-term growth in the area and uh, started working on design plans, which um, didn't make it past the 50% uh, stage or field check, but with the uh, forwarding of this project on in this development pipeline the last year are continuing to, to make uh, improvements to final design plans. So, uh, the overall uh, design of the project would be to convert the existing uh, diamond interchange into a diverging diamond interchange. Um, <clears throat> that uh, if you're familiar with the diverging diamond interchange, it may be confusing if you look at this image, but if you've been through one, you would remember it. There's one at um, uh, I-35 and 95th Street in Johnson County and one over at 435 in a row. It's primarily uh, a way to improve safety and turning movements at uh, at interchanges. There's less conflict points. So if you're coming uh, off, uh, uh, off the highway, you can make a left turn and you're driving on uh, the other side of the road uh, across the bridge. And then you, uh, on either end of the bridge, would cross back over to uh, uh, the traditional side of the road. So, um, with these diverging diamond interchanges, you're, uh, you know, able to accommodate a lot more left turns, um, and it, there's some safety improvements and, uh, the, uh, the idea on, on using that interchange at this location is really to be able to use the existing bridge, um, with, uh, the use of a diverging diamond, they don't need, uh, the bridge does not need to be widened for additional left turn lanes. Um, and so there's some, there's some benefits there from a cost perspective as well. Um, so the, uh, that's kind of a little overview of, of the diverging diamond aspect and with their project, um, I'll scroll here over. Um, they are planning to uh, relocate uh, East 900 road here on the north side of uh, 6th Street or US 40 um, over to realign with where a future collector street would be anticipated. Um, if, uh, in this plan called that John Wesley Drive, that's a uh, uh, in line with what is in our uh, transportation T2040 plan for a location of a collector street. And 
with that as well, they would, um, at least in a temporary uh, standpoint, cul-de-sac uh, East 900 Road South is that uh, also has access via Bob Billings. Um, so with the with this improved project, uh, you know, I've kind of, you know, recently um, understood that they would be doing some grade changes to US 40 through this area uh, to improve uh, safety while they are uh, making these uh, connections and uh, to John Wesley Drive. Um, so the street uh, US 40 will very likely be closed to traffic uh, when they go forward with this project. Um, to improve uh, the uh, vertical profile of the road. Um, and, um, you know, I think it would be really a good time for us to consider um, extending uh, 6th Street as an arterial street section, similar to it is to the way it's uh, constructed east of K-10 um, to uh, city street standards, four-lane street, uh, shared use pass on both sides of the street and get that through the uh, intersection here at John Wesley Drive, um, you know, kind of concurrent with their project. Um, so with, uh, they, you know, KDOT's kind of informally said, you know, would the city participate in their prod, you know, in the current project? And I've kind of said, well, you know, I think we also need to, you guys to help us extend extend Sixth Street to the west uh, to to accommodate future growth. Um, we are recommending uh, to uh, uh, submit a a letter of uh, commitment letter to the state that the city would participate a million and a half dollars uh, toward the, to their project. Um, their current cost estimate is uh, eleven and a half million dollars. Um, I, I would assume that there will be some additional costs, obviously, with uh, extending the arterial street to the west. Um, and I, I think that would uh, probably be in the neighborhood uh, of a million to a million and a half dollars. Um, so I think, um, you know, if we are contributing to the project, we are contributing to uh, infrastructure that needs to be ex uh, extended uh, to accommodate uh, future growth and also to improve safety uh, west of uh, K-10. Um, so, you know, at this point, they're, they're looking at um, uh, schedule-wise, if the, if the project moves forward to the construction pipeline, it, it would have an estimated letting in 2023. And so uh, if the city did choose to submit a... Um, to, to contribute to the project. Uh, the details on the timing would be worked out with the city-state agreement, um, but it, uh, I would say that it would not occur before 2023. Um, so we are, um, with the uh, five-year CIP uh, plan that will be coming out, we'll have a project in there that indicates uh, our participation in that amount uh, for this project. And um, I think, you know, I know that is still to come here in a few weeks, but uh, I think the critical thing timing wise is we wanted to get an indication back to the state on if we were willing to participate before June the 1st. Um, so that it, there is a, 
uh, a timeline or deadline to this that we see, uh, I guess, the need to bring this to you before uh, the uh, five-year CIP? Um, I guess the other thing that I would add is that and we haven't gotten to this point in discussions with KDOT, but um, if, you know, on, on these uh, sorts of projects, when we uh, um, ask for things above and beyond typical standard uh, design or materials such as uh, landscaping or stamped concrete or decorative light poles, those aesthetic type of improvements, um, generally uh, the state would ask the city or local to participate in those above and beyond things. Um, you know, at this point, don't have any details on what those could be or the cost, but we would also, uh, in our commitment letter, um, ask that the state consider those items to be uh, included as well uh, for the cost that we're providing them. Um, <clears throat> uh, I, I guess I'd also speak a little bit about history. Um, you know, we, we've partnered with KDOT before on similar type of projects. I indicated in the memo the, the K-10 and Bob Billings interchange project. Uh, we contributed a million dollars on that project essentially to go towards the cost of widening that bridge to, uh, account to include bike lanes and sidewalks. Um, and we've also participated um, on other projects uh, such as the East 23rd Street Bridge uh, adjacent to Haskell for the the, the uh, decorative light poles and and aesthetic improvements on that project. So um, overall, this the the million and a half contribution would be around an 11 and a half percent project match, assuming it was a 13 million dollar project <clears throat> that. Uh, percentage of participation is kind of in the range of what I would, uh, you know, which is pretty typical for a local contribution. When we get grant projects, uh, they're typically uh, 10 to 20 percent local match uh, on projects. So while this is kind of a new thing for their expansion and, modif and modification program um, projects uh, for local contributions in this new uh, transportation program. Um, you know, I think the uh, the offer amount that we're providing is, a, I think, a very fair offer amount and not only contributing to the project, but contributing to uh, additional infrastructure that uh, that we really need to, ex to uh, extend uh, city development uh, to the west. And, um, you know, a lot of a lot of these things come down to timing and what we don't want to see happen is the state move forward with this project and and then not do those improvements. And then we have to come back and do another project um, or that this project, you know, doesn't move forward for whatever reason. Um, you know, if we weren't if we weren't going to make a contribution and it waits another year or two. So um, this is our kind of our our best uh, estimate of what we th think is a very reasonable uh, request and offer. And, um, you know, the, the state didn't say, hey, give us this X amount of money. There's no, um, no requirements for us to participate. It will just help in their uh, consideration uh, when they're looking at all of the projects they have and the dollars they have and what they can move forward. Um, 
And that is all that I have. So I guess I would uh, stand for any questions. Yeah, I think a lot. Thank you, Dave. Questions? Hi, Mayor Shipley. Um, thank you, Dave. This is great. And I really appreciate that you're bringing it to us in uh, the most proactive way. I think the safety features are really important. Um, and uh, I just have a couple little questions that, um, so for example, I, I think you're kind of talking about things that the aesthetic things, um, so, you know, it's kind of near our new beautiful hospital. And so we might have an expectation that it would be kind of a gateway to our town. So we might want sort of the characteristic globe lights instead of just the kind of boring um, street lights. Um, would that be, would that come out of the pool that we're giving them the, the, the one and a half million? Or would, are you saying we might also have an additional cost. I just wanted to clarify that. Dave Cronin, the engineer. Um, I can't give you uh, uh, an answer on that at this point, Commissioner. I um, the the details would be laid out in the city state agreement. We would just ask, generally speaking, that the aesthetic improvements would be included in the cost. Um, they they could say they could say no. Um, um, you know, I think some of this is there's probably some negotiation or, or details that we would want to work out with the agreement on what all the limits uh, of, uh, of the project are. Uh, but we would work with them and they've worked with us before on projects. And so, you know, whether it's lighting or additional landscaping or <clears throat> um, for sure, we want to extend the bike facilities to the West as we're uh, extending the street. I think those are things that, uh, you know, as we are moving forward with design details that we would uh, keep discussing with them and then make sure that those are all uh, detailed in, in our agreement with them. Thank you, uh, Vice Mayor Shipley. Thank you. Great. Um, the only other question, and I, I know that you'll be able to assure me here. I don't know if you want to pull your, your picture back up where it goes further west that you're suggesting we want to um, expand a little bit um, in general, not this project in particular, but I think this could be a good example. I am sometimes concerned that we are overbuilding only in as much as we don't know what might go here. It could be really high density and that would be, I would think you said four lanes, that would be what we need. Um, but we don't really know that. So, you know, when I look around other parts of town that projects like this might or might not have been done in conjunction with KDOT, they seem maybe a little overbuilt, like four lanes in the middle of a residential neighborhood or um, the density really didn't pick up to that level. Um, can you... Uh, Assure me, can you explain to everyone out there in the public that the the size of the road that we want to build here is appropriately sized? Dave Cronin, city engineer. <clears throat> um, yeah, I, I, I as as city as the city grows uh, to the west and um, you know this area is in is in the tier uh, for for development. Um, you know, I would anticipate that happening, um, here, uh, 
relatively soon and we will need uh, an arterial street uh, to go through uh, well to be sixth street to be expanded to an arterial street west of k10 to serve any additional development so um, i can't guarantee what the timing will be i i i mean i think you know as folks in planning would would tell you they're probably running out of room east of k10 and and you know i think west is is an area that is uh you know going to be strongly considered for here you know development soon so um and and to serve that we will need our an arterial street extension on uh us 40 or 6th street to the west uh which would be four lanes um, and turn lanes at at the intersections. It wouldn't be a whole lot uh, different than when Sixth Street was expanded west of Wakarusa uh, 12, 13, 14 years ago. Um, you know, it was expanded a little longer than we are uh, looking at to tie into this project, but that's another thing that we're going to need to think about here before too long is, is going even farther with another project. Um, but this is an opportunity, at least, at least in the interim where, you know, there, this interchange is, uh, could very well occur here in the next few years. And at least, uh, to get us to the next, uh, what we would think collector North South street would be at a minimum what we want to do. So, um, that's really kind of what we're proposing tonight with with the uh, with the letters to include, uh, yeah, widening Sixth Street further than than what is shown uh, on this uh, plan. I think I have the questions for Dave. Seeing none, I'll go ahead and open up this to public comment. Um, if a member of the public would like to speak on this item, please raise your hand using the raise your hand feature, or if you're present, let Sherry know and she'll call upon you. Sherry sure, Reedman, City Clerk. Uh, no one has indicated they want to comment on this item. Mayor Figalai, thank you. I'll bring it back to the commission. And I guess I would say that um, like many CIP projects, you start to see these and you get excited about it. And then someone tells you, oh, it's going to be let in 2023 and built in 2024 or something. And you go, oh, yeah, I guess that's coming. But um, I, I do think it's a needed safety um, feature. And I certainly do agree that at a minimum, we should be expanding to that John Wesley Road um, especially if they're going to be doing grading and they're going to close the street um, to work on that hill there. I think we need to get get as much, much as we can um, to that next street as possible. Um, and I certainly agree with every, all the comments that uh, this will be a gateway into the city that we need to be sure we, um, you know, try to incorporate those features. And I know we will, but um, putting that in the letter, I, I, I certainly support other comments, questions? Motions? This is Commissioner Larson. I'll make a motion for us. Um, 
Authorize the city manager to submit a commitment of participation letter to the Kansas Department of Transportation for $1.5 million in local funds for the 6th and K-10 interchange project. Vice Mayor Shipley, second. Mayor Finkeldeye, there's a motion by Commissioner Lawson, a second by Vice Mayor Shipley. Commissioner Lawson? Aye. Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. Commissioner Nanda? I think she said aye. Commissioner Boyd? Aye. Mayor Finkeldeye, aye, passes five to zero. We'll now move to regular agenda item number two, which is a presentation um, from the Lawrence Home Builders Association, the Lawrence, Lawrence Board of Realtors and others um, regarding housing. And I am not sure who is going to kick this off, if there is a staff member to lead it off or is it going straight to Bobby, oh. Yeah, good evening. Okay. Okay, All right, we're, we're gonna start this evening with the Lawrence Board of Realtors giving an introduction and, um, and then they have a presentation, then the Lawrence Home Builders Association will speak, then Rebecca Buford from Tenants to Homeowners, and then of course, Steve <clears throat> from the Chamber of Commerce. So that, that's the wrap up and we'll start with uh, Rob Hulse representing the Lawrence Board of Realtors. Mayor, before we start, this is Sherry Riedemann, City Clerk. Can I just remind all speakers? Um, to make sure that you state your name and title or what entity you're with each time you speak. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this is Rob Holtz. I'm with the Lawrence Board of Realtors as the Executive Vice President. And if possible, I'd like to share my screen or at minimum have you share the PowerPoint that we provided. Mr. Hulse, you should be able to share your screen. Great, thank you very much. Can you all see that? Yes. Great, thank you. Well, first of all, thank thank you, um, Mayor Finkelai and, uh, and commissioners for giving us this opportunity to present this evening. Um, I'm here um, in place of uh, Daniel Davey, who is uh, typically our spokesperson on governmental affairs related issues. And Danny can't be here tonight. She regrets that. She's disappointed that she's not able to address you, but I'll do my best to uh, share her presentation with you uh, tonight. Um, as you may recall, Daniel met uh, with each of, well, not, I guess she's met with each of you, but has met um, with the commission uh, prior and expressed some real concern and requested that a work session uh, be created to bring relevant stakeholders to the table and begin a community conversation about historically low inventory and increasing sales prices of housing in our community. Um, this is um, this is this is not a new topic. Uh, we've been watching this and and we've been watching this come now for several years and and it's not unique to Lawrence although uh, we might argue that it's that it's it's pretty bad here but uh, there is no silver or magic bullet to fix this issue and we feel this is an issue that can't be solved by the Lawrence Board of Realtors it really cannot be solved by the Lawrence uh, Home Builders Association or uh, by the nonprofits within our community uh, this is a community issue, and uh, we think it requires a community response. Um, and, and a first um, disclosure here, 
uh, to note for you that this presentation is is focused primarily on on a housing ownership standpoint. Um, we recognize that housing is a vast issue, and our focus of uh, ownership isn't intended to take away from any of the good work being done on homelessness and uh, that issue and uh, the issue of having ample affordable rental units. These are all important components here in our community. So let's start with uh, some of the things that we know. Uh, we know that Lawrence is growing by roughly a thousand residents a year and that um, as a baseline, we know that in, in Lawrence, um, we have to continue to grow to keep up with this growth. Uh, the median household income in Lawrence is $53,639, and that's per the July 2019 census data, which holds very steady uh, to the data that was available in the 2018 uh, BBC report, uh, the housing impact study that was uh, completed that we all have bought into. Um, please recall uh, from that housing study uh, a finding that nearly 50% of non-student renters so non-student renters um, have a desire to buy a home. <clears throat> uh, we know that there is a demand for home ownership in our community. We also know that of this population of non-student renters, we know that they have an income of generally 35 to 75,000 per year. And we know they can afford homes between 110,000 and 262,000. Even back in 2018, the most reported barrier um, as a result of the BBC study uh, with regard to home ownership, the most uh, significant barrier was that of, of, of affordability and availability of affordable homes. And it's not only constructed homes that uh, lack in affordable inventory. Um, we know from our annual lot survey that um, we have a limited supply of developable lots here in Lawrence, and we don't want to beat a dead horse. And we've noted before in our examination that we believe that the lot list is um, a little bit more constrained than it appears uh, with roughly a third of the identified lots being undevelopable uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, some of those reasons would include um, encroachments, um, lot terrain, lot size, and, and so on. And we know that this lot scarcity drives up the fair market value of land in Lawrence. We know that um, Lawrence has made it a big priority uh, to focus on affordable housing. And we appreciate the work uh, that has come from the sales tax uh, credit to the work of the Affordable Housing Advisory Board, but specifically, Plan 2040 identified uh, providing affordable housing for all segments uh, throughout the community as a goal. So what do we know? Um, again, we have you know, our MLS statistics and we know that in a balanced real estate market, um, there's generally four to six months of available inventory as a supply. This provides enough inventory to generally meet market demand without providing any particular advantage to either buyers or sellers. <clears throat> this in front of you is a snapshot of the last 10 years at the end of April each year. And you can see a noticeable drop in inventory 
from uh, 2012 and 13 during the recession, and it has been declining ever since. For at least the last five years, our inventory has been low enough that the Lawrence market is considered a seller's market, meaning that sellers have a specific, a specific advantage over buyers. This was exacerbated this last year by pandemic conditions and inventory dropped to as low as a 0.2 month supply. The lack of inventory provides upward pressure on pricing and it, it results in increased sales prices uh, and more competition amongst buyers. The median list price, interestingly, in 2010 was 169.9 in our community, and it is now 270,000. The median sales price in 2010 was 158,000, and now sits at 249.9. Please keep in mind that these are medians, so half of the transactions that occur are, are occurring above above this level. Of note the median sales price for new construction in Lawrence is now $441,450. And that's an increase of 28% uh, since this time last year. Finally, if we look at median days on market, you can see that we've gone from 42 days in 2010 to just four in 2021. This demonstrates just how competitive this market is. So basics, limited inventory, high demand equals higher sales price. That's a basic economy, right? We know that. Um, and that upward pressure on prices means that opportunities for home ownership for folks who want to buy in Lawrence are getting further and further away um, and, and it's more out of reach. So why do we care? Why should you care? <laughs> Well, there's a number of reasons, and uh, there's a lot of studies to support a number of reasons why home ownership is a good thing. There are studies that address the benefits, both individually and community-wide. We'll take a deeper look at these five, uh, but generally, we want to just express that ownership provides stability. It plays a role in economic development. It benefits child development and educational outcomes. It provides opportunities for individual and generational equity and wealth building, and it's associated with increased civic engagement. So homeownership equals housing stability. The largest, sorry, sorry, there, uh, I'm sorry. Daniel's uh, slide just threw me there. Uh, in studies, homeowners um, report better health outcomes. So um, we thought this quote was, um, was, was very interesting. Danny thought this quote was very interesting in light of the, of the uh, pandemic. And that is that a safe and decent affordable home is like a vaccine. It literally prevents disease. Homeowners also report higher life satisfaction, self-esteem, and perceived control over their lives. Stable neighborhoods are associated with reduced crime rates and providing housing for essential workers, teachers, nurses, first responders, provides community stability by giving those workers the ability to live in a community where they work and reduce turnover caused by looking for housing elsewhere. 
Steve Kelly's going to talk uh, here a little bit about economic development, but I want to uh, touch base on just a couple of items. First, it's important to remember that housing-related spending makes up a substantial part of our economy. And it's not just realtors. It's builders, it's people working in the trades, and that's both new construction and remodeling work. It's bankers, title professionals, closing agents, really a lot of professional services in our community. And that's not to mention the home, home improvement storage. Building equity through ownership leads to greater consumer spending and gives new entrepreneurs access to new credit to start and expand a small business. And again, looking back to the 2018 housing impact study, 72% of employees reported that it was difficult or very difficult for their employees to find housing. And one in five employers reported difficulty recruiting employees due to housing shortages. And that was in 2018. There's also a number of studies that show that children of homeowners show better outcomes, including being more likely to stay in school, performing better in math and reading achievement, displaying fewer behavioral problems. And in fact, studies suggest that the stability provided by homeownership allows parents to be better able to provide stimulation and emotional support for their children. And in turn, the children experience enhanced cognitive abilities. The largest contributor to family wealth in the U.S. is homeownership. And, you know, that's why homeownership has long been considered the part of the American dream. A study between 2005 and 2012 of low to moderate income owners and renters um, revealed that even accounting for the housing crisis in 2009, this is a staggering number, owners held $24.90 for every $1 of wealth held by consistent renters. And among those renters who transitioned to ownership during the course of the study, their net worth was 11 times greater than consistent renters by the end of the study. Ownership in some ways acts as a forced savings account. It's consistent with monthly payments. Uh, those consistent monthly payments help build equity, which becomes an asset, and they can provide individual security that can be passed on to future generations. Finally, studies consistently reflect increased civic engagement among homeowners, including higher likelihood of voting in local elections and higher likelihood of supporting measures that will impact community development. There is a strong correlation between homeownership and involvement in non-professional organizations and community activities. And finally, evidence shows higher involvement in neighborhood groups among owners. So the evidence bears out. Um, homeownership uh, has strong benefits for both individual homeowners, but also at the community level. And we wanna note too that uh, homeownership um, can contribute to the ripple effect, ripple effect in housing. As we change and our households shrink and grow and housing needs change. Those with kids learning from home this past year have desired more room and dedicated learning spaces in their homes. New jobs might lead to a renter um, uh, entering into home ownership. Life changes related to a person's health or within their relationships may lead to a transition from one housing unit to another. And so whether it's right sizing or whether it's expansion, 
people's housing needs change. And ideally, the market can openly support these changes. And the market will not be the cause for renters or owners to exist without options like we're seeing today. This is all to say that housing is cyclical. And every time a housing unit opens, it creates movement among other units. So what do we do? Well, I'm gonna leave that up to uh, the subsequent presenters. Bobby will speak to that, Steve and, and Rebecca Buford as well. But I do wanna share uh, this quote that Danny, I'm sorry, Danielle had pulled uh, from an article about the benefits of home ownership. And specifically, it's that providing a hand up to help lower income people onto the first rung of the ladder to stable asset ownership is one of the most powerful engines for upward mobility and sustainable middle class. <clears throat> the housing inventory shortage is a symptom. It's a symptom of a larger affordability problem that has been developing for several years. Lawrence has some unique opportunities to provide a hand up through collaboration with private industry, nonprofits, and with you, with our, with our government. And, and to that end, I'm gonna turn this over now to Bobby uh, and Bobby Flory with the Lawrence Home Builders Association for her insight. Thank you, Rob. This is Bobby Flory with the Lawrence Home Builders Association. And as I said to you in my written comments, Lawrence is in a housing crisis due to a combination of reasons, including high demand for housing, underbuilding since 2008, historically low interest rates, and low inventory of available building lots. Add to that the highly regulated building and development environment, labor shortages, and the alarming increases in building material costs. Of those factors, the city has influence over two the regulatory environment, and the building lot inventory. We're very pleased to learn that there's an effort underway to review the development code and process. And we look forward to participate as a resource to you and also as an advocate for development codes that will allow for varying housing types and a streamlined process. And I know Rebecca will address specifically some of the, uh, the code issues um, that she wants to bring to your attention, but we look forward to that review. Um, that brings me to the um, increase in lot inventory. And as Rob pointed out, the, the lots inventory report has been pretty controversial. In fact, we think that um, the lots available are about 30% lower than what's actually reported. Um, that has been determined through a um, lot by lot review of what was in that report um, by a group of folks with the Lawrence Board of Realtors to help kind of identify where we're at on that, um, on what the available lots are. Um, a, a lot of times if a, a, how a lot has been sitting there undeveloped for a number of years, there's probably a really good reason why. And it could be because um, the property owner doesn't want to sell it or it has some topography issues that make it difficult, um, or it's just in an undesirable location. Um, but overall, um, what lots are there, the Home Builders Association strongly supports Plan 2040's policy that encourages infill development. Um, and in fact, infill development is occurring right now but it cannot meet by itself the demand um, that, that is occurring in, for housing. 
we must take a multi-pronged approach, which includes infrastructure expansion as an additional solution. This will help alleviate the supply that is currently driving up, up housing costs. And in order to expand our infrastructure, public-private collaboration must occur. We're in a unique position right now with the anticipation of COVID relief funds being made specifically available for water and sewer. And if ever there was an, uh, a good time for public-private partnerships, that time is right now. LHBA has asked Land Plan Engineering to, um, to help us identify logical scenarios for potential infrastructure growth in and around Lawrence. And we would like to present to you five potential areas uh, for growth for consideration. And right now I would ask that CL Maurer from Land Plan, Land Plan Engineering provide that uh, list of scenarios for you. Am I muted? No. Ready? Go ahead. CL Mauer Land Plan Engineering. I sh screen shared what what the pro protocol is going to be for right now. We're just talking about loans growth opportunities. Uh, the five areas we've looked at: one south of Haskell Avenue, southeast of Douglas County Correctional Facility, west of Bob Billings Parkway, north of Castle and Farmers Turnpike, and then north of Rock Chalk Park. And here's a little drawing to show. Um, along with Haskell um, Avenue, which is south of the uh, recent water treatment plant. Uh, we've also got 31st Street and around the school district out there, 1500 Road or Bob Billings Parkway for the west area. Northwest area is an extension of Queens and then the north area of, of Farmer's Turnpike. Look at the little Haskell Avenue area. To get this one, to get to the south end of Wakalusa River, you need to extend Haskell Avenue. Uh, you'll have to extend some water. Uh, there's already a 16-inch water line out there to the wastewater treatment plant. We'll have to do a little bit more sewer improvements, but that opens up and have to widen the bridge across Milwaukee. But that all opens up everything south, basically, uh, roughly, let me hit one more slide here, 2,500 lots. Now, the advantages of that are, you know, it's right there next to the water treatment plant. You've got the existing sewer and water already there, and you've planned growth uh, south of the river already. Disadvantages, you've got to widen uh, the bridge there at Haskell Avenue to get across the Wakalusa, and the SLT has to have some widening because that is right now it's a two-lane with some shoulders, but just like you heard earlier on 6th Street, you want to have those arterials four lanes. And when are talking about 2,500 lots, it's going to have a lot of traffic. The advantage of that is there's a lot of commuters, whether we like it or not, that go to Kansas City. This makes it an easy jump onto the SLT and onto Kansas City for those commuter people. Um, not that I like the people commuting, but uh, that's just reality. 
The other area we looked at was around the Kitzmiller and USD 497. Uh, there's already a pump station out there, it's, and 31st Street uh, goes along there. There's a pump station there with sanitary sewer that goes all the way through Kitzmiller's. That was done several years back to get to the development um, there along Concottle. So the streets would have to be, 31st Street have to be improved to just four lane like the rest of 31st Street is. And you could take that all the way out to 1750 Road. We just didn't do it on this uh, to keep our costs down. But we can get 31st Street and then also uh, extend water down to the pump station. Yes, ma'am. Someone? No. Oh. Um, but that opens up the Kitzmiller property. Uh, USD 487, not sure what that property is going to do or what their plans are. Um, opens up potential of 450 lots um, for $6,600,000, which is on this lower half of what the other one was on the south of the uh, SLT. You know, you've got advantages there where it's an undeveloped corner, you know, USD 497 property, existing city park, there's 40 acres right there where the pump station's located. You've also got the existing sewer running through Kitzmiller's property. So all those are advantages for this one, which could be done fairly quickly. I mean, it's, yeah, we've got the planning process to go through, but I'm just saying, for a developable in, you know, close to Lawrence, in Lawrence, uh, without too much problems, that could be developed. The other one is the west area. This would be Bob Billings Parkway, and then west to 800 Road. Um, once again, we've got the uh, USD 497 is where this would be ending, so we have school property right there. So uh, the alignment is what KDOT's planning on doing already, uh, south of Bob Billings Parkway and extending to the frontage road that goes in front of uh, the storage places and then Clinton Lake. So that will be done part of the SLT. So as part of that cost will be part of their uh, trade-off whenever they need to, because they have to build that first before they get rid of the bridge as it goes over the top of Clinton Parkway. They have to redo that bridge because they have uh, basically the speed limit. It's 55 and they're trying to do it for 75, I believe. Uh, we also have some sewer that's already extended, but we have to work out um, downstream sewer imp improvements uh, with that one. Uh, we will need a pump station, and then that, and we, we extend that all the way out to the SLT, almost where um, the force main would extend all the way to where we have sewer that comes through YSI. And that was done years ago, so that way we avoid some of the problems we have for the sanitary sewer running through uh, Avamar area there, Avamar Lake area. Um, once again, we've got a 16 inch water line. We'd have to extend sewer or water up to along the French road to that port in there. And then that way we have a loop water system uh, around that area. Cost of that's approximately almost $11 million, but you have four square miles we're working with 5,000 lots. So, you know, the bang for the buck is quite a bit on that. Um, like I said, part of that KDOT improvements are in here, so that'll have be done. Um, we have no floodplain issues, and we have the primary growth area everybody's talked about is West Lawrence. The next one was the north area. This is north of uh, what we call Farmer's Turnpike. Um, 
We've looked at those areas a couple of times on different items along Castleholt. Uh, I do know there's a couple areas there that you guys have looked at. Uh, we're looking at basically north of the farmer's turnpike for put another pump station. Uh, there's floodplain up in there. That's what those little hash marks are. Uh, but still, that's something doable we can work around. You can extend the trunk main from that up to farmer's turnpike. You also put the force main all the way up to Castled. We have extension of water line out that way. Um, that little area, we end up with 700 lots, roughly $8.5 million. But we also create a growth pattern along, along Farmer's Turnpike, which a lot of people have been talked about in Farmer's Turnpike would be the next place we'd have industrial someday. Uh, this would help get that rolling also. The last area is one north of Rock Chalk Park. Uh, that already has sanitary sewer through it. We'd have to extend Queens Road up to 1750, North 1750, and then come on down the frontage road as it goes in front of Rock Chalk Park, uh, 902 Road. All that has to have water that has to loop around, uh, but you do have sanitary. The one disadvantage of this whole area up here is it's quite hilly. Um, there'd be a lot of uh, negatives on and trying to build houses on that or even the streets on there. This also is within uh, Perry LeCompton School District. The cost of that's about 15 million, get about 800 lots. Like I said, rugged terrain. There's many property owners up there. It's not big chunks of property, and but it does have existing sewers, and we can go to Farmers Turnpike or the SLT. So I'm open to take it back to Bobby, or unless you guys have some questions, I can do either one. Okay, thank you, CL. Um, the Home Builders Association um, brings those as potential logical scenarios to you, but certainly we're not recommending um, any particular direction. We feel that is a... Um, a city commission decision and a community decision, but we are hopeful that the city is um, is open to collaborative partnerships and how we grow. And we feel there's some urgency in that. And so we want this, you know, we, we want to take advantage, we want to take advantage advantage of the timing as well. So I'm, I would think at the end of the presentation, um, I know CL will be here to answer specific questions. If you have any about um, this, the PowerPoint that he just um, showed. And with that, uh, we'll turn it over to Rebecca Buford with Tenants to Homeowners. Thank you all for having me. Um, I'm so glad to be part of this discussion. Because, And I'm going to focus on, I'm sure you won't be surprised, um, affordable housing supply. Um, but I appreciate being a part of this discussion with my colleagues, because this is all interrelated. And I guess one of the hopes I have is that we really understand tying community and public subsidy to making sure that we get affordable units out of this. But I'm going to talk about collaboration being just as important as Bobby mentioned. And I loved Rob's presentation of the importance of ownership and wealth building and that that 
entry step into affordable ownership is so critical for moving people along that spectrum and the economic development that has. I'm going to spend less time on this, but I do want to be specific about the affordable housing I'm talking about um, because the city has defined this very specifically um, for affordable housing for public resources um, really needs to, for ownership really needs to meet those families that make under 80% of the area median in income. Unfortunately, due to COVID, the 2021 income guidelines from HUD just came out and these are, are those. Um, so these are 2021 guidelines and they went down from last year. So um, much like Rob's presentation, these are people at 50 to 80%, which is the maximum. So I don't like to look at those bottom numbers because no one makes 80%. They have to be below to be eligible. Um, so really we're talking people between 50 and 75, you know, maybe we have a few that make right under 80 but the majority, our average AMI that we serve in home ownership is 63% of AMI. So um, we'll talk in a second about how many people fit this in Lawrence and you'll be surprised at how many. But basically, this is showing you we need to look what can people in these categories or these incomes afford. And the reality is different families can afford different things. Um, I just wanted to show you a little bit of this because it's really hard to show a chart that says this is the price we need of housing because families vary so much. So a single person with no dependents who has family support, was gifted a vehicle and receives health insurance through her work should be able to pay 30% of, of her monthly gross and that allows her to mortgage a little more. What we see often in Lawrence is larger families and it's because the big big issues of what you can finance and what you can afford are transportation costs, childcare costs, and healthcare costs. So when you've got a larger family, you have larger costs, you usually have childcare costs, and you have to have more transportation costs, bigger vehicles, and usually people have loans. So on car loans. So I gave you, again, not to belay this anymore, but 20 to 30 is the range of kind of the monthly payment that someone can afford. And we looked at 3% interest rate. What can that finance? Now, we all know 3% is amazing and is supporting more affordable options for people, but that's not going to be here forever either. So again, this shows us that realistically households at 50 to 80% need housing under 200,000 and uh, 68,000 to 175,000, I think is what Rob said. And, and that's absolutely right on. Um, and how many people need this kind of help? Well, only 28% of Lawrence households make over 100,000. And that's really what's required if you have any debt load for you to finance the median sales price of 249,000. So 72% of Lawrence households really can afford the median price right now. That's the supply issue we're talking about. I mean, there isn't houses available, but even if they were at the prices they're at, 
they're not a people can't buy them. This is that gap between incomes and and housing costs that we've got to address with sup increased supply and increased affordable subsidy which also means density, but I'll get to that. So 40% of Lawrence households make under 50,000 and we're really talking prices that are under um, the, you know, 68 to uh, even a little less, uh, 160,000. Um, and again, this other factor is getting into ownership. When a majority of our households are currently paying maybe twelve hundred to fifteen hundred for rent, which is is you know where we we talk about overly rent burdened, the problem there is that they're not able to save any money, and this means they can't move into ownership because it often requires ten to fifteen thousand out of pocket. So again, getting them to the place where they can participate in ownership and build wealth is such a huge part of what we want to look at for affordable ownership. Um, 2,300 in the BBC market study were renters that would like to buy if this affordability is available. And again, these numbers were really pre-COVID. What we know since the pandemic is that the need has significantly increased because income has dropped, as I mentioned in 2021, and we have only seen increases in rental rates and housing prices um, since the market study. So if anything, it's worse than, than what this looks like. So how do we create permanent affordability with subsidy, with anything we subsidize? And again, we're looking at this federal money that is coming down. How do we make sure we lock that in so it's most efficiently used in our community? Um, and I don't want to say that it's just tenants to homeowners. Any of the organizations that do affordable housing can lock this in, but it's a community commitment to permanent affordable housing when we subsidize things. Um, and so we've done new construction. We have 88 homes that are permanently affordable. And I want to give you a glimpse of what that has meant as far as um, what we have done with resources and how that continues to create affordability moving forward. Um, we have done acquisition rehabs. We've done buyer initiated acquisitions, which is important because that means we can collaborate with for profit developers who create a few units, give us a discount or we, we work out a deal and we bring subsidy to buy those down into affordability. In other words, the for-profit developers don't have to do anything different and we can make a good mixture of, of you know, moderately affordable and truly um, affordable to people under 80% AMI. Um, we have a, a majority of single family homes and townhomes in trust, but we can do condos and we can do other density. We can do um, with the new affordable density bonus, more than one home and separate leases on a, a single lot. So we have to keep pushing density in a way that allows us to bring our price point down. And all of these types of ownership can be locked into community uh, permanent subsidy. 
So just to give you a sense, has this really created true affordability? The average price of the 88 homes in trust, even as they've resold over the years, has been 104881 So when we look at that compared to the $249,000 median, we actually are, are truly creating affordable housing for the incomes that we just talked about. And so then the next question is, does restricted equity work? Um, the great news is all of those great things that Rob talked about, homeowners being able to move up into the next level and buy our Lawrence Home Builders next house that might be a little more expensive. The reality is there's a resounding yes to the answer of does this work to allow lower income homeowners to move along the housing spectrum. We have had 48 successful resales since we began in 2005. 91% of those who have sold land trust houses with their restricted equity took that equity and bought on the unrestricted market. So the great thing is we allowed them to move on um, and it really is a stepping stone into the housing market well beyond affordable housing but the reality is we also balance the need for the community to maintain a permanent stock of starter homes that are truly affordable and what does that really mean what that means is we initially subsidized the 88 homes with over 3 million, 3,796,000, approximately 43,000 per home, which isn't a huge amount when we look at some of the subsidy that we're, we're thinking of using. But that amount has appreciated. Um, and my best estimate for 2021 subsidy is now at 6,971,000, nearly double what we originally invested because we use 75% of the market appreciation on those homes, get recycled and go to the next buyer to keep their affordable price low. So that a teacher that buys the house initially, we can sell to another teacher 10 years later whose income hasn't grown at the same market appreciation. So these are what we call permanently affordable. I want you guys to find a way where if we get federal $3,796,000 in federal money, we can double it in 15 years and continue to let it work for family after family to move on to the unrestricted market. There is really very little example of subsidy that doesn't need to be paid over and over again and that 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 gap grows over time in this case it actually becomes relatively more affordable because we are not giving the homeowner every dollar since they didn't have the full sales price we subsidized them initially and they are happy to do that because they're comparing that to making absolutely nothing on the rental market so we now have an idea of what we need for affordable housing, we have an idea of how we lock those community subsidies in to keep serving more and more people. Um, and now how do we increase that stock of affordable housing? And we all know you guys have on the commission have said this more than I have that we have to have scattered site affordability. It can't be in one neighborhood. It needs to be in all neighborhoods and it needs to be in all developments. And this is where 
that collaboration that Bobby spoke of is key. We need to have affordable units in all new developments, um, but that doesn't mean we put all the billing on the affordable housing developer. The nonprofits and community organizations and the city can collaborate and be a part of making that work. Um, there is no silver bullet. We need a variety of approaches in development and housing types. And this is where I know no one likes the word density. It's a bad word, but the reality is single family zoning that we have relied on for many years is way too expensive to meet the local needs for housing increases and supply increases. We have to be okay with reasonable density, particularly if we do not want to become a some a community that people that only make over 250,000 can live here. We want baristas, we want people that work at McDonald's, we want a variety of incomes to be in every neighborhood. And that means we have to have building projects um, that have more density so that we can lower those costs, as well as supply increases that help us lower those costs. So when I talk about a collaborative approach, um, you know, public, nonprofit and for-profit, what does that really mean? Well, I think what that means is we have a development, um, perhaps uh, some of us nonprofits bring subsidy to the development. Uh, some The city does some infrastructure help or create some density bonuses for the for-profit developer that, that balances their costs in exchange, they tie some of that balance or some of that bo those bonuses to having more affordable units. So we use um, some of this funding braided and leveraged with other affordable housing funds to develop a, a mixture type of development that gives us some affordable housing and allows us to justify subsidy in that development, but also helps for-profit developers at the same time increase their supply for moderately priced housing. Um, and that allows the families to move along the continuum. I love the idea of early affordable housing, but they love the neighborhood. And when they're ready to sell that house, they move on to the next development in that you know, moderate or higher priced housing that was it part of that development. Um, so we we strengthen neighborhoods and movement within those. Um, across the country, people provide density bonuses, infrastructure help, limited parking, less administrative process from the city and planning and zoning um, to allow for more affordable units. So again, developers have to collaborate with us and we have to create affordable units, but let's incentivize developers to put affordable units in the mix with a clear incentive policy that, that acknowledges that I cannot build the affordable housing I build without subsidy. Um, and we're not talking about housing that serves um, homeless and supportive service housing, we know that requires a more subsidy and really needs to be in the not-for-profit world. But developers can absolutely help us build starter houses and help us, um, you know, develop lots that we can then acquire with subsidy and, and create more affordable starter housing. 
And then how can the develop code be improved to address affordable supply? And again, infill development has got to be part of that, um, that we incentivize infill development and try to cut costs by continuing to expand a loud mix of housing types. I mean, again, single family housing without a lot of um, mixture becomes really more expensive. Um, so duplex, cottage code, triplex, downstairs apartments, ADUs, um, which we have embraced, um, that we target money, money to this updating of middle housing units, some of these affordable units that were grandfathered in as downstairs apartments and we fix them up and we allow deeply subsidized housing to have the greatest density allowances because it's the only way to get to that cost point. Um, the affordable density bonus was a great first step on this, but we need to push that envelope. We need a cottage code. We need um, units, you know, triplex and duplex and ADUs that, that fit um, into that more affordable housing development. ADU flexibility, we have embraced ADUs, but size ratios, parking and ownership requirements really limit its use for affordable housing. I have half of my homeowners in, in homeownership in my current housing trust homes would be willing to let us build an ADU in the backyard on land we already own, which would be a great increase in affordable unit um, without having the lot costs of new units. Um, but a lot of the size ratios in the current ADU code does not really allow us to do that on more affordable houses. It's designed for a big house that has a larger lot and can put a little mother-in-law apartment. Um, but I think we need to look at that and expand ex affordability's use. Finally, affordable housing variants. Um, the reality is if someone is really trying to create affordable housing, whether it be for for-profit or non-profit developers, and they meet the definition and have restrictions to keep that affordable, there's no reason why we can't bring to the city some additional costs that just don't make sense in context for that particular infill development and ask for a variance. If our community has express the absolute need for affordable housing. But the reality is that a lot of times development code has put cost to that, that that reduce or completely eliminate the affordability. I'll give you one little example and I have a list of many others, but um, development code required that on one lot that was a platted lot, but 10 feet had been added to that lot from a vacated uh right a vacated right away no one's going to split that 10 feet from that lot but development code required that we replat that lot at a cost of $3,500 to change the legal definition from a legal definition that was currently legal to another on a piece of paper it did not change anything else no one can tell me why that provided health or safety. It's a great example of where it just added $3,500 to an affordable housing restricted land trust home. So that would be a great example of where I could say this really doesn't support affordable housing. Do we need to do this? What is the purpose of this? And I know, you know, that 
that the city has to be very careful and consistent with people. But again, if we're trying to do affordable housing, we need to be able to make strategic decisions where some of these things don't make sense in the context of affordable housing. Um, and there's a lot more examples, but I won't get into the weeds on that. I just wanted to give you one example where it really, there was no reason for it. And rules that don't have good reasons or maybe have gone beyond those reasons, um, you know, let's look, let's look at those and let developers who are in the weeds looking at those costs bring that to the city. Um, that makes a lot of sense for me. So I want to create affordable housing supply and I want any increase um, in units to include affordable supply. And I want to work in collaboration with the city and for-profit developers to do that successfully. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. <clears throat> um, I think last, I think uh, Steve, Kelly has uh, some insight as well. Um, Steve, are you there? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Yes. Very good. Well, again, I'll I'll, I'll be the uh, the tail end of the, the formal presentations. And again, I want to express appreciation to the mayor and members of the commission. And I applaud your interest in having this important discussion regarding housing in our community. And I appreciate the opportunity to be part of the work session and to speak to you briefly about the role of housing and economic development. For local companies with opportunities to grow and expand, or for companies looking to add facilities and new locations, workforce in the view of most of those who work in economic development is the single most important factor driving business expansion and relocation decisions. Whether you're an existing company in the community seeking to grow employment, or a company considering a community as a location, and determining your prospects for attracting workers to your enterprise, where your workers live and how far they must commute to the work site is an important consideration. One of our recent recruitment targets as part of its assessment of Lawrence, we're very interested in information identifying the community of residents, commuting distances and drive times of the employees of several of our existing companies as part of their market assessment. It's also quite common when company officials or consultants are in town and we're giving a tour of the community for them to specifically ask to be driven through both older and newer residential areas and for us to be asked to show them the variety of housing options that exist in the community. The Chamber EDC recognizes the important role that housing plays in economic development and recently took an opportunity to ask other economic development professionals at the regional and state level about the role that housing plays in site location and in business expansion decisions. And here I have a few examples of what their com of their comments. Uh, here's one. If you don't have affordable housing to support new or growing workforce population, that's going to put a community at a disadvantage. We are seeing shortages across the US and the communities who are working in partnership with developers to address the issue will have an advantage. Taking a proactive approach on this issue also illustrates to companies and consultants that your community is nimble and can address issues quickly. This can put you in a positive light as they tend to assume you will, be also, you will also be more responsive and supportive if they locate their business in your community or your county. Another, workforce is generally number one on the site selection scale these days. In some specific cases, other factors can be a priority, but it's usually all about workforce. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
for projects where some or many of the employees will be transitioned in the region from other markets or where the jobs are a draw across a wide geography, housing availability and price moves up dramatically on the list of needs and wants. We're all working to grow the population and workforce by drawing prospective employers to the Kansas City region. We're also targeting people we'd like to bring back, those we consider expats, who, those who have gone to school out of state and or are working out of state in an effort to encourage them to relocate to the region. As long as housing is tight, it will be difficult for those individuals to relocate in significant numbers. And then finally, Housing concerns come up from time to time on higher employment projects, more from the perspective of providing direct proximity and access to workforce than anything else. New housing starts across the spectrum, multifamily, single family, and in diverse price ranges, give our clients confidence, the community, and therefore their potential workforce pool is growing. We believe the linkage between workforce, which is the primary factor in economic development opportunity and housing is clear. This community with the establishment of Peasley Tech and with ongoing support of technical training took a great step to advance the technical skills of our workforce to meet a need several years ago. A lack of expanded housing op options may very well be the next limiter of economic opportunity for this community. We appre appreciate your thoughtful consideration and, and evaluation of ways that we can deliver expanding housing options for our workforce and for our community as a whole. Thank you. With that, I'll turn it back to Bobby or, or to Rob and thank uh, yeah. you. Um, this is Rob Hulse, uh, Executive Vice President, Lawrence Board of Realtors. Um, thank you, Steve. So um, thank you, commissioners, um, for sitting still for a long period of time for that presentation. So thank you very much uh, for that. Um, we're, we're grateful um, as stakeholders coming together um, we're grateful for the opportunity to present and uh, to have this conversation. We're happy to address any questions um, with, uh, with you, and um, whether that be this evening or whether that be at some time in the future and we continue, as we continue to discuss housing solutions in our community. Uh, but very specifically, I want to leave you with these three things. We, as we move forward, we, we would ask the, uh, the city commission to, to help us with these three specific things. One, we ask that intentional and collaborative growth to increase the Lawrence housing inventory be made a, a priority now and not simply added to a future capital improvement plan. With the influx of some federal funds, we have a unique opportunity right now to make a real difference. We ask, number two, we ask that the, um, we ask for a comprehensive review of the development code to identify and address barriers and impediments to affordable development. And number three, we ask that you assign a dedicated planner uh, to housing and to help monitor our community needs and, co and coordinate amongst us stakeholders. And uh, with that, um, we'll close our, our presentation and invite any questions. Thank you. Mayor Finkelard, thank you very much for that presentation. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of questions, but let's go ahead and take a 10-minute break. We have been here for a little while. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We will have questions, opening up for public comment, have discussion. So 10-minute break. We'll be back. Let's go ahead and go at um, 7.55. We'll be back at 7.55.
Boydo, are you ready to go? Ready here, Mayor. Mayor Finkelstein, thank you. I'll go ahead and take the roll call as we come back from the break. Vice Mayor Shipley? Here. Commissioner Nanda? Here. Commissioner Lawson? Here. Commissioner Bully? Here. Mayor Finkelstein, I'm here as well. We are now um, coming back from a break and we are going to enter into questions, then we'll open it up for public comment, then bring it back to discussion. So, commissioners, what questions do you have? Well, I can start then. Um, no one jumped in. Um, kind of go random in a few places. But, Rob, one of the last things you said was a you mentioned a, a dedicated planner for housing was one of your recommendations. And I was just curious what you meant by that. Did you mean someone who's 100% of their job was just housing or there would be one person that you could go to when there was a housing project or what, what, did, what do you envision there? Um, uh, great question. Unfortunately, I'm filling in for Danielle and wasn't a part of the uh, group discussion. So I would defer if I could to uh, Bobby or Rebecca, uh, if you have some thoughts uh, with regard to the question. I'd be happy to jump in and answer that. What we talked about was having somebody from staff that coordinated the efforts, kept a very close eye on the um, inventory lot reports. And as Rob said in his comments earlier, that coordinate between all the stakeholders in housing and just helps to keep housing um, front and center and also as a direct resource for those of us in the industry. So I think that could vary on the number of hours. We didn't really discuss whether it was part-time or full-time, but just that the the task and the representation's done. Mayor Finkelstein, thank you. I, yeah, the word dedicated, I wasn't sure what you meant there. I assume, CL, are you still in the chambers? C could you answer some, some questions, CL? <laughs> Yep. Okay. Thanks, CL. Um, just kind of in general, you know, you, you obviously, I know these are very rough estimates you put up there, um, but the, the dollar amounts you put up there, would, were those um, total cost to bring that infrastructure, or was that this what you estimate to be the city's share somehow of the infrastructure or well, those are total costs so that would be basically the city because if you try to put that on a per lot basis it just never pencils out for these developers to do it on their own so yeah when the numbers came up that was if the city city would step forward for that kind of money that's what their benefit would be you still haven't i mean the developer's still gonna have to pay for you know, the infrastructure to each one of the lots, water, sewer, streets, sidewalks, trails, whatever they end up going through there, that's still gonna have to be part of the development. But just to get to those, you know, from point A off the city limits to where our, most of these events are happening or where those larger lots are, you need to have that infrastructure in place. Is that? Yeah, Mayor Finkelai, thank you, that helps. You, you, on the one of your slides, the Kitsamillo slide, the East 31st, mm -hmm. one of your disadvantages was the um, 
I think it said something about the fees associated with the sanitary sewer. Is that is that is there already a benefit district there for that sanitary sewer line, or what? What were you referring to there? Yeah, I mean, you have some fees. There's an existing pump station that was there, and you're going to. I think the way the city was set up, as people connect to this sewer, you pay a fee to help reimburse you guys for that cost of putting that pump station in there. Um, so, and I, I don't know what that, it, it varies depending on the year you connect. So it's kind of hard to narrow that down. <laughs> okay, I just wasn't sure what that, yeah. that meant. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm looking through all the comments I have compared to questions I have, and I'm trying <laughs> That's to fine. I understand. separate the two. Um, so, CL, for the for example, well, let's take the uh, the road south of um, the Wakarusa, taking Haskell South. Uh huh. You know, that's a, your estimate is to make that a full lane road. Um, I assume that's because for major development, it needs full lanes. I mean, it's a pretty nice road as it exists now, and they just added those shoulders. Does, does our code, and maybe this is a question for Jeff, not you, does our code require that to be full lanes before we could, um, you know, start putting houses out there, or is that just because that's the standard you think we're eventually going to have to do that we'll eventually have to do that you could probably get away with doing partial but sooner or later you're going to hit um, so much traffic out there that it's going to have to be four lanes and so depending on that timing um, so yeah you could probably get away with doing some you know maybe a thousand lots but at that point in time the traffic is going to be increased so much on haskell that you're going to, you know, start having accidents at some of those traffic lights, stuff like that. So there's a there's a give and take in there where you got to, you you could actually do this in steps, and maybe down the road you end up knowing that improvement comes up. Mayor Figley, I guess I was thinking, I mean, for some of these projects, I mean, you know, to the extent we, I mean, we obviously have a problem now. I mean, for certain projects, you know, you know almost all the projects, you know, going on 34th Street, for example, you have to build the whole road before you can even stop building the houses. Correct. But one on the south seemed to be one, you could, you know, you could get the water and sewer down there, you already have a road, that would be something you could go quicker maybe than some of the other projects. And that's why I was asking the question about, you know, if, if the code required it to be four lanes before we could do a subdivision, or if that's just more the standard because it seems no, like that's it wouldn't, the, it wouldn't, the only yeah. one. It wouldn't require it right away, but it, it's going to come down the road and oh sure, and then it'll have to be done. Uh, yeah. So. And I guess the one to the uh, Mayor Finkelike and the, I guess the one to the north has roads to it, you know, fairly you know, fairly well on, on the roads when take the major infrastructure as much as the water and, and wastewater going north. Yes. I'm just trying to think of the timing of some of these directions. Some of them are a lot quicker than others. Yes, yes. That one could be quick. I mean, yeah, I mean, extending the water down there and, and connecting to your sewer, your sewer is really close. So you don't have, you know, very far to do that. 
so. Anything like, thank you. Mm -hmm. Those are my questions for the moment. Other questions from commissioners? Commissioner Larson, I did have a question. Um, the the tables you put together, um, see all that about the cost to the city for each one of those proposed locations. Did you also look at the potential tax revenue that would be gained from those various lots, and whether or not it would um, pencil out that the the development of like the 2,500 lots for the first one, 450 lots for the second one. Did you um, pencil out whether or not the taxes get um, gained from those properties would potentially pay for the um, cost to the city? Um, no, we did not take that next step to figure out what your tax, you know, because you can do that in several different ways. I know that that's you haven't done them for years, but you used to do them by benefit districts. And over, you know, a 10 or 15 year, you would put specials on each one of those lots. So now the affordable housing, that doesn't, that kind of takes away that affordable housing. All of a sudden you got a special you got to pay for uh, for the next 15 years. So that didn't help, help that very much. But um, a lot of Bob Billings Parkway, when it was done, from Monterey Way all the way to, well, all the way to SLT was done by specials. Either side of Bob Billions Parkway by 300 feet, all those property owners paid this special for the 10 or 15 years to get that street in. So you could do the same thing here again, you know, figure out how many lots you want and put it on those. So that way it'd pay off. Then you know it'd pay off for sure. Commissioner Larson, so do you know if the, the, the specials that were put on the Bob Billings Parkway um, properties, did that pay off the cost to build that road? CL, did you? Oh. Did, you did I, am I on mute or something? Yeah, no, I didn't. Um... As far as I know, because what that was, was that the it was two lanes was what's required to be paid for. And then the specials took care of the other two lanes and the, and the uh, medians. Um, okay. So yeah, it ended up paying for itself because it's based, the specials were based off of what the cost of the street was. And then okay. it was divided off. Cost of street and design, it was all lumped into one. Okay. So, yes. Thank you for that. Um, so the city paid for their, the original two lanes, and then the expansion was um, the money for that was gained through specials. Right. Okay. Mr. Larson, thank you. That's all I have right now. Okay. Um, when when I think about the the city investing and sizable investments in in the future of our community, I think about our strategic plan always um, and go back to that. And um, maybe folks were really happy to not have this conversation um, come December anymore as much. But um, I look at, you know, not only not only the now, but also the future and where we're putting our dollars and how we're prioritizing that based on that strategic plan. Um, and I just wonder, you know, as you were looking at those areas that you brought to us and you were estimating those costs, um, is that 
is that based on, you know, you know that we could get 2,500 units out there as soon as we got that infrastructure? Or is it a bit more like these are options and we could build it and they could come, um, but we don't have someone, you know, who's who's saying, gosh, I really wish this existed so that I could invest significantly in a development in this specific space. You have developers out there now that would like to, to do these things. That's why kit spillers can't have been done. You, you can't have the 450 lots, pay for all 31st Street, pay for all that other, and still have them pay for the 450 lots. It doesn't pencil out. Developer won't do it. That's why they haven't done it. They have to, you know, come break even or make some money out of it somehow, some way. Carrying costs will kill you. I mean, if you're looking at trying to build 31st Street, you're two years out. Okay, you buy Kids Miller's property, you've got two years of interest you've got to absorb somehow, plus pay 31st Street. I mean, these, that's just the reality. I, I, I don't know. Um, the 2,500 lots, that's just based on single family. If you have multifamily out there, something like that, then yeah, then it ends up being, you know, better for everybody. Um, and it pays for a lot of other stuff quicker. Um, but yeah, you have developers out there now today that would like to do this stuff. And they're going somewhere else. I mean, they're going to Lenox or they go to Topeka. Um, they go to Jefferson County and they have, you can look on the website right now, there's lots available in Jefferson County, just two miles north of the um, airport. It's been built and they're trying to sell them. So yeah, you've got guys out there who want to do this. It's not, not wishful <laughs> at all. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and as you were looking at those spaces, were you considering um, like the social aspects of those or were they merely space available? So I'm thinking about like food deserts, um, access to transportation, things like that. Um, were these were these merely based on the space being available or also the kind of other and for the social infrastructure needed to make those spaces successful as well. I mean, basically, we were finding these were what we could extend utilities or extend streets to, and what areas those were. Uh, that's how we were coming up with whether these were viable spots. I mean, we weren't trying to go, you know, a mile out or where you didn't have any kind of infrastructure or like if your bus service and stuff like that. We didn't get into looking at that. Uh, Millers would be perfect for, I mean, you already have a bus service that runs out to Douglas County. They make the loop and come back to O'Connell Youth Ranch. That one's pretty much a no-brainer. That one, that one works out real well. Um, even, even Bob Billings, or the out extending west, Bob Billings, you've already got bus trailers that goes out that way, going out a little bit farther and come back around. Uh, they could do that. So um, those are two examples. Haskell, yes, it's a little bit farther. They'll have to take a bus route to go down there and back, but it doesn't mean it couldn't be done. So. Commissioner Nanda, thank you. Mm -hmm. right, thank you, CL. Um, yeah. Other questions for other presenters, or should we open it up for public comment, bring it back? Vice Mayor, maybe maybe I'll try. Um, uh, this may be a little bit 
for Rebecca Buford and a little bit for Bobby also. Um, Rebecca mentioned several times that um, single family zoning doesn't really do much to help affordable housing, but traditionally um, that has been uh, the kind of development that any of these areas would meet out. We, we would see cul-de-sacs and we would see yards and we would see um, the kinds of patterns that um, really we're learning are very sustainable. So um, I'm wondering how these partnerships are gonna look and um, whether um, the builders understand that the affordable housing aspect of this is, is um, looks very different um, uh, and maximizes uh, things uh, that, that the post-World War II building uh, pattern haven't in the past. And how, how, will that, how will that look if we open something like this up? I can jump in there, Courtney. Thank you for that question. Rebecca Buford with Tenants to Homeowners. I agree we're kind of at this precipice of opportunity, if I could say, of where we're really realizing and COVID just made that so much more obvious and supply issues are making it obvious that we have to look at alternative density options. Um, we're at that price point um, and we need to, uh, even, even without affordability that I'm talking about, I mean, if even moderate income housing is getting too expensive, uh, you know, to do giant single family lots. Um, so we have to look at that or essentially we're, we're going to gentrify and price people out of our community. Um, so I know this has been a discussion constantly over the last five years, right, where people know density. And I kind of want to say, well, if you want to live in the 1950s forever in Lawrence, it, it's going to be hard to do because the reality is we have to be creative. But I think um, if we use federal money, if we use public money, we can really push everyone to do better projects with um, more creativity and diversity of housing types. And, and sometimes, you know, I think to do the best projects, we have to be kind of pushed a little bit, nudged a little bit, let's say, into that. And I think a combination of things is where we're at in Lawrence. The need is at in Lawrence. We don't want a cookie cutter of duplexes for a giant swath of our community. We want some um, cottage design for seniors that are affordable. We want some duplex rentals that are hit an affordable price point and developers would love to build those. We want some single family that's affordable and market rate um, to still serve the moving um, economy and families at different mixed incomes. And we want that all together in developments um, because that's what's going to provide the best type of mixed income neighborhoods. So we don't want to create segregated neighborhoods. And I think we have a real opportunity because we're not extremely segregated. We have old mixtures of housing types 
from before the post-war World War II era where we went to single family cul-de-sacs. Um, and we can look back to that and we can recreate some of that, um, you know, with double density and other things in different neighborhoods that haven't seen that before. And I, I challenge everyone on here to keep pushing us that direction. And I think the developers are ready to move in that direction if they can still make a reasonable profit. Um, and again, the collaboration would allow us to do more affordable. Um, but if we develop, like if we develop um, some different levels of multifamily housing and some RS7 that allows for some single family housing, but affordable units could be have two houses and we do some smaller cottages on that because of the density bonus, you start getting um, an ability to have some great mixture. Yeah, you could do something close to what you did with Briarwood, where you end up with an alley in the back where you have your garage with a mother-in-law's apartment above it and have your single in the front. And, you know, but you got to relax some of your codes where you end up asking for 26 foot wide drives for fire protection and, and when it could be a 20, but you, you, you got to think about this stuff. It can be done, um, but you also got to help. I mean, both sides have got to uh, push and, and get that done. Uh, I mean, Briarwood, the only thing they didn't have was mother-in-law's apartments. They had garages back there, and then they had single family in the front. So, I mean, that's an example where it doesn't have to be cookie-cutters, and all. they're still single family, um, but you allow that extra room in the back. So... There's ways of doing it. It's just a matter of sitting down and discussing what everybody wants. Or I have a row of townhomes. You know, townhouses all together, and you still end up in an alley in the back. You still end up with the same, you know, same thing. You have a single family, but you have them all together. It makes, you know, your common walls. So. This is Bobby Glory with the Lawrence Home Builders Association. And, um, Courtney, I would respond to that by saying that we need all types of housing opportunities um, for our community. And what I'm hoping to see, and I think Rebecca is too in particular, is with the new development code that some of these <clears throat> changes are made to allow for creativity that also um, CL was just referring to. So um, that's pretty exciting that we're going to be taking another look at the full picture of development code. There are uh, builders out there that desire to build affordable housing, but without subsidies like Rebecca, and Rebecca has subsidies and it's a challenge for her. The market rate builders, um, you know, they build market rate affordable housing and when they can, but right now uh, the constraints are not allowing them to do that. <clears throat> but there is definitely um, a desire for builders to build all different types of housing and different niches of housing. So I, I would, that's how I would respond to that. And the collab, I think there's definitely um, collaboration in the future if we can get creative. If, if And that collaboration isn't just between um, the nonprofits and the for-profit builders, it includes the city too. Everybody working towards the same goal, which is uh, providing more and appropriate housing for our citizens. It, I don't know, it's, I feel like it's a, a great opportunity we have right now to work together and come up with something really cool for our city and, and not be like every other city 
um, that is struggling. Uh, let, let's, let's be the leaders and show them how it can be done. Vice Mayor, if I may, Jeff Craig, Planning and Development Services, just wanted to add in a little bit here about the development code. It is a process that we're starting to undertake is to take the very hard look at that code and see is it giving us the community and the expectations that we want to have out of it. Um, so we expect a really great conversation with the community as that process starts to get going. And, you know, what does that look like? What needs to be done? What's working? What's not? And a very similar line in that, but we're also taking a look internally at our development review process, ways that we can streamline, make those more efficient, try to get the kind of the, the quirks of them worked out so it's efficient for everybody involved. So that's something we're getting started right now. We're hoping to kind of get that process rolling very quickly, but it's just wanted to mention those two things are definitely on, on the horizon for planning and development services in the next few months and years. Commissioner Arson, I have a question, I think for probably for staff. Could could you tell me if there's any models out there that were where they have gotten rid of zoning categories and actually controlled density or drove density by um, having a maximum lot size requirement? Jeff Craig Planning and Development Services. Um, a couple that come to mind was recently a change that happened to the city of Minneapolis, Minnesota. They recently changed and did what was called a, a de-statification of their code. They've compressed their zoning districts down. So instead of having multiple single family zoning districts, they have one uh, or, or two. So there's a couple of those that have been more recent in history. Um, there are some that have gone the other direction. Um, you mainly tend to see those, I believe, in California, maybe on the Western coast, where you have that lot maximum size instead of a lot minimum size. And they, they have some different parameters and works around, but that is something that is out there in the in the literature and, and codes. Mr. Larson, thank you. This is Commissioner Bowley. Um, I'll just toss a question out to everybody on the presenting team and see who'd like to take it. Um, does anyone have any specific recommendations with regard to neighborhood revitalization areas? I think it was a topic that was touched on, but not gone into in great detail. So I'm very much interested in that. Um, Commissioner Bowley, I, I would just, um, I would not be able to speak to the full neighborhood revitalization other than to talk about um, infill development as it is a policy in plan 2040 to be um, a, a strong effort to um, become efficient in filling in the neighborhood and using the existing infrastructure um, and bringing in um, strong housing stock into existing neighborhoods. But as far as the full neighborhood revitalization, that wasn't really, um, uh, that wasn't something that I've studied, but um, that might be something, I mean, that's definitely in this um, conversation and we'd be interested to learn more about it and see how we can um, add to that. We've used that for specific, this Commissioner Bulligan, we've used that for specific uh, single property projects, but we haven't used it for, you know, neighborhood areas. And, um, you know, I think there was a mention of essentially property tax benefits um, for people who revitalize their, their properties. Um, and and I, as I say, I'm interested in that, so. 
Mayor Pinkley. Um, let's go ahead and open it up for public comment. We'll let, um, and then we can bring it back to, for any other con questions or, or conversation. So if a member of the public would like to speak on this item, please raise your hand using the raise your hand feature. Or if you're present in the courtroom, you can let Sherry know and she will call upon you. Chris Flowers. Hi, um, this is Chris Flowers and um, I wrote down some notes that um, one of the things that really struck out to me was when they talked about the basically the health and quality of life differences between um, renters and homeowners and I've been kind of complaining that commission before that I think sometimes uh, renters should be treated like a marginalized group. And I think that kind of backs me up because that was some pretty big health discrepancies between the two groups. And at some point, I'm wondering if we should be looking at how to make things more, I guess, equitable so that those discrepancies aren't there. And like the, the health difference isn't that great between homeowners and renters, but that's probably for a different meeting. But um, one of those things I'd like to ask about would be like, what about more than four unrelated, unrelated people living together? Um, that seems like something that brings up affordable housing costs. And it might just be for renters, but those renters would be renting less buildings. And if there were less buildings being rented, that might open up some for being um, bought. Um, also, what if we're talking about costs, what if this new long-term rental inspection, what kind of cost will that bring renters if we're doing mandatory inspections? That, I think that's going to bring up the cost for that. But how that, I wonder how that affects is if rents go up, does that decrease does that make it harder for renters to save money to buy a house? So I would like to have that looked at at some point. Um, also, I was wondering if it's, if it's possible to tax uh, vacant lots, because they were talking about doing that for downtown. But what about people who are using lots basically as a so they can have a big a big backyard with not without another neighbor? Maybe they should be taxed more. Um, also, this might be controversial, but what about uh, reducing our population growth? Um, what impact would like getting a zero percent high school pregnancy rate would that create less people who 20 years from now won't be needing housing because they're not they just don't exist so that's something i would like to I, I don't know just stuff to keep in mind but definitely i want to see at some point this commission taken up how can we make renters and um homeowners more equitable when it comes to those differences like quality of life and health um like life expectations thank you is there anyone else on zoom who would like to comment if so please raise your hand owen lehman can you, uh, Owen Lehman, can you guys hear me? Yes. Okay, so I am a contractor in Lawrence, Kansas. I have recently done infill development, and I mean, like, I was standing on something I infill developed today. 
Uh, I currently own multiple houses for sale uh, in Lawrence, Kansas that are on the market in the affordable range or just above that. I'm telling you right now, we've lost common sense on this. Um, the people that you're talking to right now that are presenting you this stuff have been presenting this stuff to us for 10 years and nobody's taken the time to listen to them. And we've done this in uh, realtor association meetings. We've done this in homebuilder association meetings. We have been talking about this vigorously for a long, long, long time. And um, nobody's really paid attention to them. And I just want to stand behind them and say, like, I think they're doing a great job. And for once, we really have to take this and all these people very seriously because we all knew this was coming. We've been talking about it for a long time. Projections have all been there. It just became more prevalent. And now people are starting to pay attention to it. But this is real. We all knew it was coming. Common sense has kind of been lost. Infill development is extremely difficult. It's extremely expensive. And to be honest with you, I don't really want to do it anymore because of the actual development code and what it actually takes to do versus what you get out of it when you're done. So that's kind of my two cents. We have to open up lots to build on. We have to keep going. Thank you. Is there any other public comment on this item? Mayor, it looks like that's all the comment. Mayor Finkel, I thank you very much, Sherry. I'll bring it back to the commission for comments, discussions, additional questions. Let me start and just, I guess, maybe say, does anyone have any additional questions before maybe we get into comments? Vice Mayor Shipley. Um, um, I heard someone, I'm sorry now, I don't remember who, um, uh, talk about what Topeka does. I think you see Jefferson County maybe too. Um, I don't think we compared those places for a number of reasons, but there are other places that we might compare to um, or that we could look and see what they're doing. Um, Overland Park seems to be uh, booming pretty well. What are they doing differently um, that, that we're not doing? I think like that question just anyone have an idea? <laughs> Mayor Finkel die. Um, I guess I'll jump in with comments. Um, you know, I think start with the the uh, the issue of the code. I mean, obviously. As Jeff said, we're we'll, we'll starting to head down that route and head down the route of a development and reviewing our development processes. You know, we, you know, this commission before me and and did plan 2040, and now you know moving forward with a code that you know works um, with that to really encourage infill development. We have heard over time that 
we want infill development, but we don't have a coach to support that. And so I think that's going to be a big, a big step forward. You know, you, as you start to move into looking at, at the code and, and start thinking about, um, you know, some of the more, I don't want to say drastic, um, you know, I mean, doing away with single family zoning is, is certainly a, a, a growing trend um, in different cities. I know Jeff mentioned Minneapolis, but there's several other cities that have gone that way. I think the state of Oregon has done away with it as an entire state. Um, and, you know, as we watch some of the development in East Lawrence, I mean, I've had people say to me over the years, well, you know, single family zoning is important because, you know, people don't, um, you know, people don't want to buy houses next to houses. You know, they want, they want the most expensive house on the block. They want, you know, they want the neighbor's house to be similar to theirs. Well, you're seeing in East Lawrence now, um, you know, very large new houses next to a duplex, you know, next to a triplex, next to a affordable unit, you know, across the street from another new house. Um, and you're starting to see that that mixture. And it's certainly, you know, historically in, in Old West Lawrence and some other areas, but you've seen it more um, recently in uh, East Lawrence. And I'd be really interested to see and consider new developments that have, you know, single family houses next to duplexes, next to triplexes, next to single family houses, next to, you know, $500,000 houses, next to $200,000 houses, and really have that mixture. I think, you know, again, a code that allows for some of that flexibility, I think would be unique to see what, what, what builders would do. Um, you know, as far as, as the growth and some of the you know, for example, some of the ideas that that CL um, put forward. Um, you know, I, I mean, I'm a big big believer in that that we need to be, you know, cooperating, trying to figure out how we can continue to move move the city forward. I mean, I you know, we talked a lot about cooperation both in the affordable housing realm and with developers and making a city partnership. I mean, I you know we we talked about five different areas, but, um, you know, obviously we're not, maybe we're going to grow in five areas. Maybe we're going to grow in one. I mean, I, I would certainly be open to, you know, developers, landowners, um, who want to work with us, you know, work on affordable housing, work on housing in general and come to us and, and ask for a partnership. I think that's something we should be open to. Um, you know, I'm not sure we should, pick a winner and say, we're going to go south or we're going to go north tonight or, you know, anytime in the, in the future, because we need those landowners and that cooperation to go along with it. So, um, but I I would certainly be open to that, um, you know, seeing what those plans are, seeing what those developments are, you know, and, and and building that public private collaboration. Um, Again, there might be someone who proposes something we don't agree with, or we don't want to collaborate with, but that's part of the process. There could be ones that they come to us and, and then we work with others. Maybe we bring Rebecca on board and it becomes a project we do support. Um, and I do think it's time that um, we start looking at those. You know, some of those projects are going to take a long time to develop. I mean, you know, a long time to build roads, to build, um, you know, infrastructure, water, wastewater. So we, we need to have those discussions now, but we also need to be working on our code to allow um, things 
that could happen faster than that. So anyway, I'm, I'm excited about it. I mean, I think, you know, the, the conversation is an important one to have. I think the affordable housing conversation has been, you know, a developing conversation in our community. Um, and it's something we want to continue to look at. And I think this is a, a good time, as several people have said, you know, the time is right to to, to push this collaboration forward. And, and so I, I appreciate the presentation tonight and uh, look forward to, you know, doing what we can to to work, you know, towards some of these common goals. Commissioner Larson, um, I, I think that um, regarding a development code, I, I, I don't think there's anybody that I know of that is in an agreement that it's time for a development code to catch up with the reality of today's housing conditions and the need for um, easing some of those restrictions so that we can, you know, provide some little of incentive for, for uh, more density and uh, the ability to, to capture some of the low income um, housing needs or to, to address those. So, you know, I'm um, definitely in favor of that um, to go that route. Um, the collaboration that, um, um, that you know we have opportunity to be a part of we definitely need to be a part of that and i do take a little bit of exception to the idea that we don't take the developers seriously because it's not true um i've had numerous in-depth conversations with um several members of the um community the development community and um you know i've always appreciated their comments and their ideas and, and their need to to um you know make development work for them i mean they've got to pencil it out just like anybody does. Um, and I will always um, take that with deep, deep respect. So I think this is a great start. Um, probably, this is probably the most information I've seen as far as possibilities um, in one place. So I'm very excited about the future and what we can do. So um, I'm looking forward to what comes next. This is Commissioner Nanda. Yeah, I don't think that this is an either or. This is very much an adaptive problem that's not unique to our community at all. Um, and I've been in, you know, Houston where you can build a house anywhere. Um, uh, and, and I've been in communities where I think it's probably more restricted than here, um, not having dug into their zoning code. But um, I think that I think that there is a real big opportunity, like Rebecca was saying, you know, this isn't just a affordable housing isn't just a nonprofit organization problem or a private business problem or a city problem. It really takes those collaborative, innovative solutions. And I think that when we're looking at housing and access to affordable housing, um, regard affordable for any income level, um, that's really vital that we all collaborate and have these comprehensive conversations on these things. I think that when we're talking about housing too, we're talking about primary prevention of so many other issues besides just life expectancy, but, you know, um, generational poverty, um, our ability to, uh, to have some kind of stability, particularly when we're experiencing trauma outside of those experiences, um, so I, I think that this is an incredibly important conversation and I think that it goes beyond um, just availability, but really what is the greater impact we can have on our community and how do we as the city have a role in that, particularly as it relates to our strategic plan. This is Commissioner Bowley and I always appreciate Commissioner Ananda being able to 
bring me back to uh, especially my history. Uh, 44 years ago, I lived in Houston <laughs> and uh, I was a renter. Okay. So, uh, and I wanted to buy a house, but not so much in Houston. So uh, thank you, Commissioner Ananda, for reminding me of my uh, past. <laughs> you know, I, I really want us to be able to come together. I appreciate you coming together tonight with us to, to share this. And collaboration is the key. Um, we have a lot of challenges as a community, and I think you pointed out some of them. Um, and uh, I appreciate that. You, you, you kind of brought it home to me the way Commissioner Anand did. Vice Mayor Shipley. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think we've all been looking forward to um, digging into the code um, and some other things coming down the pike, ADUs, um, I think is going to be a very interesting conversation. Um, some of the things we sometimes mention are some of the things I think we wait for pushback from um, established neighborhoods, for example, or um, neighborhoods who, for example, are perfectly fine with the three-person limit in their neighborhood. It's sometimes a misunderstanding of what it was they were fighting in the first place and um, a, a lack of context for what caused some of these things or why we have some of the rules we have, which indeed may be wildly outdated or not doing what we want them to do, but um, were more than likely a very valiant attempt on someone's part to um, stop some manner of um, behavior that was interrupting um, neighborhood life. Um, and in fact, degrading the things that we're all talking about wanting to improve on. Um, I think what we kind of forget about is that this is a college town and it's a, when we talk about renters, um, a lot of times we're not talking about renters, we're talking about students. And um, I think it's important to call that out when that happens. Um, there, That is a kind of bias that we need to be aware of. Um, a bias against having student housing in our neighborhoods. Um, but also students need to be aware that they're in neighborhoods and, and um, uh, be a part of the community um, when they're young adults. Um, when I see some of these things, that's what, that's what I see some of the pushback being um, from established neighborhoods. Um, but I think that we can come to a consensus and a compromise on that. I think we can um, I think we can mitigate the the things we don't like and get the things that we really desperately need like density. Um, and I, I'm very excited that we're finally going to be able to um, have some uh, really honest conversations about what we need our neighborhoods to look like, what we think safety means, um, what, what we think is accessible for children, what we think is accessible for um, retiring people. Um, and, you know, 
I'm as excited as Rebecca Bubert seems to be imagining the the neighborhood of the future that um, we've we, we've never considered because we've we've seen the same kind of pattern in places that we've lived. And I think Lawrence really is a place to be that creative um, and to expect more um, from uh, the endeavors that we that we think of from now on, not just, you know, business as usual. So I'm, I'm very excited about um, all of the partners here. And I'm excited about what Lawrence could do if we put our mind to it. Mayor Finkel, I don't want to cut off discussion, but I also like to end on such a positive note too. Um, I mean, obviously here, we're here to receive the report is, um, you know, I, I, I very much appreciate this. This is a, I think a big step forward. And I, I hope that, you know, the, the presenters and those watching are hearing that we're open um, to this collaboration. And, and, you know, we look forward to the, to the next step um, you've already heard from Jeff and you know, some of the steps that they're taking within the planning department. And I hope that gives you some encouragement as well. And so um, I think we're ready to to continue this forward. And of course, tonight we're receiving the report, but um, um, you know, that's, that's the first step. And let's look forward to having some second and third and fourth steps here relatively soon. Any Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Commissioners, make sure nothing else. Thank you very much, everyone, for coming and, and presenting. And, and, and we'll go ahead and move to item number three, which interestingly has some overlap because it's also about growth and how we need to um, be prepared for that as in how we take care of our current neighborhoods. So a lot of overlap, um, both from agenda item one Agenda item two, I think, leads into agenda item three. So, Chief Coffey. Thank you, Mayor. Commissioner Sean Coffey, Fire Chief. Uh, yes, it's been very informative as we've uh, listened this evening. Obviously, when we hear terms like growth, we think about response time and we think about density, we think about reliability. So, very informative. But tonight, we're here to talk a little bit about our annual uh, presentation on accreditation. Just to remind you that we've been an accredited agency since 2008. We're one of only 100, one out of 104 internationally accredited departments in, in the world. And so when you think uh, within Douglas County, there's six fire departments, multiply that by 105 counties and think about that through the United States, uh, one out of 104 is a pretty small number. So we're extremely proud of that process that we're internationally accredited as well as an ISO one. The accreditation process is a very rigorous process. Uh, we have to be re-accredited every year. And we'll talk a little bit about that as we go through it. There's 11 categories within that 11 categories, 48 criteria and over 250 performance indicators that we have to address. And so tonight, hopefully you'll get a little bit of insight into our current operations. Tonight with me, I have Mackenzie Izell, our fire analyst, and we have Division Chief Tom Fagan to do the presentation. Good evening, Tom Fagan, Division Chief of Administration with Lawrence Douglas County Fire Medical. Uh, thank you for um, your time this evening to hear some great information about our organization as we look to improve over time. 
and share with you a little bit about this process. Uh, this presentation tonight that you're going to be receiving um, and the slides is really just scratching the surface of the information that's included in tonight's packet. You'll actually see the accreditation report that was published by the Commission on Fire Accreditation uh, back in 2018 and included also is our annual compliance report that we have to complete every year and submit uh, to the Commission on Fire Accreditation International every year. That's reviewed by a peer assessor team leader and then they provide a recommendation to the Commission who every year um, again recognizes us um, and the cycle then repeats over and over again. And so with that, um, Mackenzie, if you have this slide up, we may go to the next slide there. Great, thank you. All right, so accreditation, what is this thing that we do here at Fire Medical and, and why is it important that we talk about this? And um, it's very important because it's, it's how we adapt um, as a department. It's how we evaluate ourselves. You heard Chief Coffee talk about the different categories and criteria, over 250 performance indicators. And when most people think about the fire department, they think about the traditional services that we provide, responding to structure fires, responding to emergency medical calls, all of these emergency situations. And those are all included in the this, in this system, um, but there is so much more. We talk about risk management, our safety processes, human resource functions, governance. All of these different things are evaluated um, in order to improve and adapt how we do business. And so we're going to talk about just a few of those things tonight. So for accreditation, you'll see the components here. Um, for a fire department to pursue accreditation, they have to complete the fire and emergency services self-assessment manual. And that is really the bulk or the body of all of the 250 performance indicators that are specific to um, how that organization does business. And so it's a performance-based evaluation and not a standards-based evaluation. And what that means is that no matter what you're doing, there's always room for improvement. You're always evaluating, even if you are compliant with a performance indicator, you're identifying and evaluating how it's working for you and what opportunities exist to improve. And really in the spirit of that, organizations in this model are pursuing excellence. And uh, that's important. What we like to talk about is that we're pursuing excellence and not necessarily pursuing just accreditation. The accreditation is purely a symbol of what our commitment is as an organization to serve our community. So um, after the completion of this self-assessment, um, those documents are submitted to the Commission on Fire Accreditation International and an assessment team comes on site and reviews your documents and um, validates and verifies the credibility of the documents and all the exhibits that you provided to show compliance um, with the model. Um, there are recommendations that are identified by that team and they publish an accreditation report that report is submitted to a commission on Fire Accreditation International who determines accredited status. And that occurs every five years. Well, in between those five years is actually where we currently are. And every year within those five years is an annual compliance report. And that's what we're talking about today on our progress towards those recommendations. So with that, McKinsey, you wanna to go to the next one? Okay, so our key purpose tonight, again, this is quick. Uh, just scratching the surface, we are going to cover some data tonight, 
um, but there's a lot more in the document and I would encourage you, I know you all have a lot to read, uh, but I would really encourage you to dig into some of those things. So uh, the first one being annual communication with the authority having jurisdiction of the department's capabilities and capacities. This is actually a performance indicator out of the assessment and planning um, category, which is category two of communicating with you on what, what we're capable of doing and what our capacities are uh, that relates to the services that we provide and the quality of service in regards to response time. So you're gonna see some of that tonight. And then also in the report that's in the packet, you're gonna see all of the 17 agency specific recommendations that we received from the commission on how we should be adapting to improve and more compliance with the model. And ultimately that would result in more value to the community. So you're gonna see our efforts in that report as well. Um, as we're uh, moving into the next slide, uh, I wanna introduce Mackenzie Azell. She's our fire medical analyst and uh, she does really great work um, with us and we're very fortunate to have her. And she's gonna talk to you about some of the ways that we monitor our performance and our response time matrix. Hi, Mackenzie Ezell, Fire Medical Analyst. Um, so first, we're going to talk about performance monitoring and what really matters when someone calls 911. So aside from the skills um, that are expected when we show up to that incident, it's about timeliness. And so to look at this timeliness, we're going to look at the baseline response performance, which is our actual response. Um, everything that we're going to be looking at is in the 90th percentile. So to review the data, we first categorize the call types into risk levels. So to link this conversation to our mission, we're gonna be looking at two of the high risk call types that address lives and property. So um, structure fires and cardiac arrest. So for structure fires, the baseline for total response in 2020 was nine minutes and 29 seconds. Um, with this, the fire suppression apparatus is an apparatus that can stop the clock when they arrive on scene. Next is the cardiac arrest for 2020. We had seven minutes and 32 seconds. Um, for this, any unit can stop the clock. So when we look at these times, we're really comparing them to um, our quality practice standard, which is six minutes and 30 seconds. And this is actually um, an NFPA standard. And we can see that our baselines are currently longer than the benchmark. So to work on and to study the total response time, we break into three fragments alarm handling time, turnout time, and travel time. And those can be seen at the top of the slide. So for the next slide, we're gonna be jumping in to looking at each of these um, for 2020 and then also previous years to see what trends we've seen um, and what really impacts those. All right, this is Tom Fagan, Division Chief of Administration. I'm gonna set this slide up for McKinsey. Um, so as she described this chart, and there's lots of data on here, and we're very fortunate to have this, but uh, looking at the y-axis, the vertical axis, you're going to see some numbers along that side of the graph, and that correlates to minutes and seconds, all right? And as you're looking at uh, the x-axis across the horizontal there, you're seeing years. And so what we've done here is we've been able to create a line graph uh, that shows trending uh, for the different segments of total response time that goes back to our original accreditation back in 2008. And so there's some interesting analysis here that McKinsey is going to talk to us about. Yes. So first I'm going to talk about what each of these times actually are. So we have those three fragments that I mentioned that all go into the total response time. 
So we have alarm handling time, which is from when 911 picks up the call. Um, so it's dispatch. And then until they alert our crews. And then it begins with the turnout time where our crews are getting ready. They're getting on the fire apparatus or the medical unit, and they're getting ready to go to that call. And then starts the travel time from when the wheels are turning to when they arrive on scene. So with this graph, we're going to be looking at our benchmarks and our baselines from 2008 to 2020. So with this, um, let's start with looking at the alarm handling time, and those can be seen in the red. So our dotted line for alarm handling time is that lowest line, and that's our benchmark. Um, so that's where we'd like to be. Where we actually are is the thick red line above that. Um, and we can see that this has fluctuated. And recently we've had positive movement with Douglas County Emergency Communication Center. Um, for instance, 2021, we've been working on this new workflow with them that we've seen an impact to reduce time. And so we only have about a month's worth of data related to this right now, but um, they're working really hard to improve that workflow and make it better for um, not only the callers, but the call takers and the first responders. So the next level is the turnout time, which is the yellow. So same thing, our benchmark is the dotted line. Um, our baseline, how we're actually doing is the um, thick yellow line. So for that, what we've done to improve this, this has also been fluctuating. Um, we've had tech improvements in our station. So within each of the bays, there's a, um, a clock, kind of like a shot clock, where it shows a countdown. And this is making the time more visible to our crews so that they're aware of how they're performing in relation to turnout time and that benchmark. Um, also with the turnout time, we've just incre increased the communication with crews of the importance um, that they have within this time segment to influence that full total response time. So the last element of the total response time is the travel time. And we're gonna be looking at the green lines for this. Um, again, the benchmark is that dotted green line. And then our actual baseline is the um, thick green line above that. And so a few things have influenced this to kind of combat the, um, the elongation, the increase, um, one of those being GPS technology that we have in traffic signals that actually open up um, intersections that um, allow our apparatus to move quicker and more safe through those. Um, the second technology improvement is the dispatch actually uses um, GPS to locate our units, our available units, um, and can dispatch the closest ones to the incident. Um, so a few things that kind of work against these improvements are the increasing incident count, the increasing demand of um, or on emergency resources, and that impacts the availability. So if one resource is not available in the closest location, whether they're on a call or doing something busy out of service, um, then it pulls from the next closest. And then this is also in further influenced by traffic which um, we did talk about quite a bit two years ago when we did um, a very similar presentation. Um, but really the times begin to elongate and these three components create that total response time that we're able to look at. Um, so at this point, I'm gonna turn it over to Chief Coffey. Thank you, Mackenzie. Sean Coffey, Fire Chief. Just to, to reiterate some of the things Mackenzie said related to the response time metrics. As Tom indicated before, Chief Fagan, excuse me, uh, we are about continuous improvement. So we're trying to use uh, different things to, to 
reduce or the impact on the different components of the response time matrix. And she talked about the GPS and the signals, being able to make sure our apparatus can move through quick traffic quicker and have that green light. It's also safer for the public and our firefighters. The AVL automatic vehicle locator indicating that the closest fire medical unit to that area on the call is going first to help reduce that response time. Uh, we have MDCs in the truck that provide us information. We continue to work with emergency communication centers to try to reduce that call processing time. Uh, recently, within the last several months, as McKenzie indicated, we've had seen some significant improvement and we'll continue to work on that with the hopes that that will continue to be reduced. Um, we talked about turnout time in the stations and she talked about the clocks that were there. We also did turnout time studies where we actually had the people practice getting out of the station. And we did that multiple times to try to figure out what that time was from the bedroom to the fire truck. And so with that, we're even looking at maybe in the future, our station design in an effort to be able to get the firefighters closer to the apparatus. So we have that turnout time reduced. Uh, and that's a big part of it as well. Really, Travel time is the one that, that probably has the biggest impact that we can't control. Distance is distance. And we can work on the turnout time, the alarm handling time, but the travel time is distance from point A to point B. And as the city continues to grow, we get more and more calls and trucks are having to respond from distant, different districts to cover other districts. We continue to see that elongation of travel time. And I will tell you in 2018, when we did our community driven uh, community uh, strategic plan, which is made up of community members, the number one thing that they indicated they wanted was rapid response to fire and medical calls in all geographic areas of the city. That was their number one priority. All right, Tom Fagan, Division Chief of Administration. So just touching on some response time uh, data there, but uh, also continuing on with our performance monitoring as our program evaluations. And so we have numerous programs within the fire medical department, fire suppression just being one of them, emergency medical services, uh, public education, fire investigations, risk reduction programs. Those are all additional programs um, that we have here. And so we have a system that's a requirement. Uh, each one of them is a performance indicator in the model. Uh, for evaluation every year. And that's based on a structured template to where we identify the program's purpose. And we do this annually. We identify the inputs that we put into the program, the outputs or the activity, what we're doing with the resources, and then what is, what is the return? What's the impact or outcome that we're seeing as a result of our efforts? We evaluate that, and then we identify recommendations and next steps for improvement and then try to identify what the impact of those next steps or improvements would be. And so you'll find several of our program, annual program evaluations in the template, I'm sorry, in the ACR document that's in the packet this evening. We're gonna share just a little bit more information since we're talking about structure fires on some outcomes there. Okay, so this next slide, there is some data and a graph here, but uh, I wanna try to keep your eyes out of the numbers first of all, and kind of set this up first before you get drawn into the data. I know I get, I do that when I see numbers. Um, but when we talk about outcomes and response times, we know based on science and research that time is a critical element to the growth of fires. 
And so we have seen an elongation of our total response times, um, but time is just one factor. We could have the fastest response times in the nation. And if we weren't highly trained professionals, we would still be having poor outcomes. In addition to be putting into, being put into a position to stop loss, we have to have highly skilled professionals to be able to do great work. And so that's what this data is showing you. Um, what we're gonna show you is that when we're put in a position to stop loss, we're doing that very effectively. Now you're gonna see in that top line, 45% of the time, the fire has grown beyond the room of origin when we arrive. What that means is that on a building fire um, from the area of origin, wherever the fire started, that it has grown beyond the room of origin into the floor. And so now I'm gonna bring your attention to the, the pie chart that's on the graph there. So this was the conditions that we found when we arrived on scene of the building fires in 2020. These four different categories of flame spread growth, and when I say flame spread, that doesn't include smoke damage. This is actually where the fire flames were. Um, and th these categories are connected uh, to the National Fire Incident Reporting System, which connects up through uh, the fire administration, uh, the National Fire Administration. So first we're gonna see in the blue seg segment of the pie chart, uh, fires that were found confined to the object of origin. So 14% of the time when we arrived on scene, that was the case. 41% of the time uh, when we arrived on scene, the fire was confined to the room of origin. Uh, next, uh, the fire uh, had extended to the floor of origin 21% of the time, and 24% of the time the fire had extended uh, beyond the floor of origin to the building. And so that's that because firefighters, when they arrive on scene, they can't take away flame spread, all they can do is stop the damage where they find it. We can't remove the loss, but we can stop the loss. And so what you're seeing in the graph on the right is that those same segments, uh, the outcomes upon confinement is that when we got arrived on scene and the fire was confined to the object of origin, we held it there 100% of the time. When the fire was confined to the room of origin, uh, there's more fire growth. There are more, more tasks that need to get done to extinguish that fire. We still held it 100% of the time to the room of origin. Um, the next level, when the fire had extended beyond the room of origin into the floor of origin, the majority of the time we held it, there was only one instance on the building fire where we didn't hold it there, um, and it did spread to the, to the building. And likewise, on building of origin. But as you can imagine, there's much more... Um, critical tasks that need to be done to mitigate that emergency and the arrival of resources to do that. But what this articulates is that you're getting a high quality product from your firefighters when they arrive on scene here in Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, when, they're, when they're put in a position to stop loss, they're doing that very effectively. And so when we talk about response times, it's important to show the outcomes along with that response time quality. Okay, uh, capabilities and capacities. So um, from our purpose slide, you'll see that this was one of our objectives for tonight. Um, I'm gonna bring your attention to the map on the left. And I first wanna give credit uh, to some great uh, technical staff that we have with City IT, GIS, uh, Planning and Development Services. Uh, There's so many uh, great uh, 
team members that we have that we really uh, lean on to help us do research and evaluate our capabilities. So that being said, this is a GIS, GIS work that we've worked with City IT. And you'll see this is, a, this is a, a map of the city of Lawrence. You'll see the five dots there, one, two, three, four, and five, and those correlate to our five fire medical stations within the city of Lawrence. There's a green, uh, what we would call a polygon um, or a shadow around the map there. Uh, what that represents is our travel time capabilities from each one of the fire stations showing four minutes travel time. And that's based on an ESRI GIS program. That's not something that's just drawn out. We think we can get there in four minutes. It's based on science and the program to evaluate our capabilities. And so that map is showing from each one of the stations four minutes travel time, which is that quality practice standard. Remember that this is, that analysis is when all those units are in their stations, it's a perfectly sunny day, there's no ice, no snow on the roads, no traffic, and uh, there's no other calls going on. We average between 35 and 45 calls a day, and many of those calls um, take more than one resource to mitigate. And so you can imagine that that green blanket or that green shadow that's on the, on the map there, we call that the standards of cover. And that blanket is always evolving based on conditions that are changing throughout the, the day. Minute to minute, there could be a call, tying up resources, uh, they could be um, prevention activity going on, inspections, training activity that this this blanket is constantly changing. But based on capabilities from each one of the stations, you can see what the green shading is there. Um, we've identified three geographical gaps uh, in coverage based on our four minutes travel time. And so with that, we know that the, the more calls that occur in those areas, we, we don't even have the capability to provide that quality response performance within that area. This is leading up to uh, looking to the map on the right. So we've taken the standards of cover blanket off, and you're seeing those same geographical gap areas with uh, projected development uh, based on the city's planning in 2030 and 2040. Did see some similar information uh, like this earlier this evening, so it's interesting to see that. Um, but we are gonna we are experiencing some response time challenges now, uh, and those may be um, compounded in the future. Um, but this is all setting up. We've recently completed a station optimization study that we're going to be bringing to the city commission that does a much more detailed analysis of what is the impacts within some of these geographical gap areas and what recommendations would we have to address these challenges in the future. All right, in conclusion, just kind of touched on the station optimization study. You'll see the cover there on the slide. Uh, that'll be coming here in the next several weeks. We're very excited about a new technology, a mobile application called PulsePoint. McKinsey um, is actually the project manager for that, and that's going to be um, something that's going to help our uh, not only our, our residents in the city of Lawrence, but all of Douglas County, our first responders, and any, any citizens who are interested in downloading that um, and promoting citizenship and a connection to bystander CPR. So there'll be much more to come on that. Uh, we're preparing to um, start on our new department, community-driven strategic plan. That may be confusing because the city just did a strategic plan. It's like, oh, is this another one? 
Well, this is a much uh, more focused strategic plan at the, think about at the business level of the fire medical department. And so we'll be looking to engage the community here very soon in August, and then taking that data internally into our internal stakeholders to try to identify the roadmap uh, for fire medical as we look into the future. We're also gonna be starting our new community risk assessment standards of cover. Um, our last one was completed in 2017, but we're needing to refresh that in order to set us up for our next uh, formal on-site accreditation review, which is gonna uh, begin in the fall of 2022. So we have quite, quite a bit of work in front of us on things that we need to be um, getting after. So, but uh, just wanted to give you an update tonight. Again, this is just scratching the surface of all of the information that's in that annual compliance report and the accreditation report. Um, but with that, I'll open it up for any questions that you may have, and thank you for your time. Mayor Finkel, I thank you um, so much for that presentation and, and the information. And before I open it up to questions, I would just want to congratulate you again on your accreditation and, and, and being in that top 104 in the nation. And I know that sometimes when you get it over and over, it seems like, well, of course they did, but we know the type of work that really means that to stay to stay where you're at is important. So thank you for all your work and thank you, Chief and um, District Chief Fagan for all your leadership. Um, it's very, um, very important to us and, and we appreciate all your hard work. Questions from commissioners? Vice Mayor Shipley, um, I'm, I'm gonna probably get this detail wrong, but um, I noticed you with one of the things you mentioned was your cardiac arrest time. And I think I remember um, when you took the mayor and I on a tour, um, some mention of some new training with respect to cardiac arrest response. Um, and I was personally extremely impressed and proud um, at the cutting edge training that you guys have. Um, that may not have anything to do with your response time, but do you find it has um, improved your success, success rate? I'll let uh, Tom and McKenzie uh, add it to my comments, but Thank you, Commissioner Shipley, Sean Coffey, Fire Chief. Uh, you're probably talking about our, our new Heads Up CPR program where we use the autopulse mechanical device to provide that more effective CPR. Uh, we are working through that program. One of the things that, uh, speaking of the strategic plan, that's one of our KPIs within the strategic plan, the delivery of a pulse-style patient to the hospital. And so, uh, we're seeing that uh, we believe that performance that will increase. We don't have all the data yet from uh, 2020. I would tell you 2020 um, with COVID was a unique year as related to cardiac events. We had a significant uh, increase. Um, I think a lot of people, instead of maybe going to the hospital, uh, remain home, unfortunately. So we saw an increase. But uh, we'll continue to measure that and uh, hope to have good outcomes for that. That's that importance of, uh, you know, arrival time. They say, uh, interesting fact I found the other night was they said for a sudden cardiac event, your survival rate is if you can get somebody there in five to seven minutes is at 50%. Once you meet the 10 minute mark, your survivability, you have little chance of survival. 
And so as we talked about pulse point, uh, as we talk about response time, obviously critical getting there, but that effort as McKinsey will be leading for us in pulse point to try to engage the community to help us with that uh, risk reduction effort in that regard as well. And so I, I hope I answered that. Uh, McKinsey or Chief Fagan, anything to add? Yeah, I'd add this Tom Fagan, Division Chief of Administration. I would add a little bit on the outcomes for cardiac arrest. We did see an increase uh, with our new protocol, uh, the Cardiac Arrest uh, Program for Excellence, the CAPE program, we call it. Uh, we did see an increase. Our current um, uh, statistic or outcome measure on getting a pulse or a return of spontaneous circulation, we'll hear the term ROSC, uh, prior to the arrival of the hospital is at 38%. Um, it doesn't mean that they survive the event leaving the hospital. That's important to know um, that that just means that we got a, a return of, of a pulse prior to arriving to the hospital. Um, and so it's important to know that statistic. There's a lot of other measures and we could spend um, a lot of time talking about um, um, cerebral perfusion pressures and surviving the hospital as a result of our efforts. And we do have some of that data as well. Uh, but one statistic I would note that we're hoping to influence uh, from this application of Pulse Point is bystander CPR engagement. We have seen that uh, our engagement uh, within Douglas County, uh, not just in the state of Lawrence, but in, in Douglas County is less than the national average for bystander CPR. And so uh, that being said, um, bystander CPR will greatly increase the chances of survival even prior to our arrival by doing CPR. And so we're looking to, um, we're, we're really looking forward to see the impact of that and a, a significant marketing campaign with the rollout of this mobile application to really empower people and encourage them to engage. Uh, statistically speaking, you're most likely to perform CPR on someone you that's a family member or, or a loved one. And so being educated, informed, empowered to be able to make a difference even prior to the arrival of the fire medical department just increases the chances of survival even more. So we're really excited to see the impact of that as we move into the future. This is Commissioner Ananda. I know that you mentioned the number of cardiac arrests increased last year um, with you know folks staying at home and perhaps not accessing medical services. Did you see other changes um, last year, increases in fire calls or any other significant differences? It, it was very interesting. Uh, initially, when just like um, everything in our lives, when COVID first started, there we saw a significant decrease in the number of calls. And then as the year progressed and, and we got into the winter and then the spring, we've seen our call volume return to normal. But for quite a while there, it was considerably reduced. Um, and I think a lot of, like say, people were concerned about getting out. Um, they always said they, we were out, that we need to educate our responders, that people are as worried about us as we might be about them. And so making sure we had all of our things in place and educate folks to get and go. But that was kind of how it went. It went down considerably and then rise and now it's returned back to what I call normal. Mayor Finkelai, looking at the, uh, I think the 17 recommendations, one I'll just comment on and I have a question on the other one. I did notice it says it rec recommends that you, we need a larger public works division in order to repair 
the equipment. We've been talking a lot about that, but I was interested to see that's also on your recommendation. But there's also one on leadership, develop a formal leadership development program. I just wonder if you've started to look at that and if you had any ideas of what that might look like. Our training division has been working on that, and uh, we've been working in conjunction with the University of Kansas. They have the Kansas Fire Rescue Institute that uh, we can rely on for that support, as well as the, the Center for Public Safety Excellence has a credentialing program that we've been encouraging people to be involved with. The nice thing about that credentialing program is that, again, it's about continuous improvement. You receive it, but you have to continue to develop. Some certifications you get, you hold, and you never have to do anything to, to receive it. I would tell you my Firefighter One certificate that I got back in 1985 is still valid today, and you probably wouldn't trust me out there now, but uh, it's still valid. But with the continuous improvement through the Center for Public Safety Excellence, that credentialing program, they continually have to come out and show progress that they're continuing to develop. And so we're working through that, and we think we have a good mentoring program as well. Tom Fagan, Division Chief of Administration. I'll speak to the recommendation on the public works and our vehicle maintenance facility. Uh, one of the observations from the site visit was, um, and we do have large apparatus. Um, obviously, fire trucks are, are not small. Um, our last engine was, is a little bit smaller uh, based on our specifications and some reimagining there. Um, but uh, the facility there, um, as we look into the future and what they identified as peer assessors on site, that that facility um, may be able to provide faster turnaround times for maintenance improvements or repairs um, if it was replaced with a different style of facility, maybe with some other types of enhancements. And so uh, it kind of goes to what I was speaking to earlier uh, on this model of continuous improvement, that it transcends just what happens within the walls of fire stations and fire, uh, administ fire medical administration. Uh, it extends into human resources functions. It extends into MSO, which provides maintenance in our facilities, uh, maintenance on our in our vehicles. And so those were just some, some identified areas for improvement based on that evaluation of performance indicators within each one of those criteria. And so we have um, had conversations uh, with Robert Aaron uh, with uh, MSO. Um, and then we also talk routinely with uh, Jason Stowe with MSO facilities as well on things tied to our department's needs. But uh, yes, we have been in communication with them. You'll see an exhibit in the ACR of some of the efforts they're working towards for the Public Works campus and the maintenance garage piece that's connected to that. I recently had a conversation um, with Robert Aaron about that and that that is just one piece of that, that bigger uh, proposed plan. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Mayor Sean Coffey, Fire Chief. I think that the accreditation process does involve a lot of work within our organization and we it involves all aspects of our organization. But as you mentioned, without the support of all the other city departments, we wouldn't be able to be successful in this. And it even touches the city manager's office uh, all the way to Douglas County Emergency Communication and even payroll and HR. And so it looks like it touches every aspect of it. And so without the support of everybody in the city, we wouldn't be able to do it. So we're very thankful for that support.
Mayor Finglai, any other questions before I open it to public comment? This is a public comment item. If anyone from the public would like to make any comments, you can raise your hand using the raise your hand feature, or if you're present, you can let Sherry know. Chris Flowers. Hi, this is Chris Flowers. I just have a quick thought. Um, maybe it was it was brought up. I I missed some of this one, but um, we, you were talking about cardiac arrest response times, and I'm just wondering um, how much time, like how many seconds, do those speed bumps on Mass Street uh, south of 23rd when you're going into Haskell, like how many seconds of a delay do those speed bumps cost um, fire and medical getting to a row cloud or Blaylock Hall? Because I would think it costs at least five seconds. Um, I've accidentally drove over one of those speed bumps at like the speed limit and that was I thought I was going to damage my car on that. So I don't I don't see how those fire trucks can because there's no there's nothing in the middle for them to drive across like there are on some of the other speed bumps. So I don't I don't see how those speed bumps don't delay our emergency response times to Haskell. I, I was just wondering, like, because I. I I, I I don't see how they don't slow down to go below the the speed limit and like how fast can they speed back up again? So I'm I, I'm just wondering how if we know how many seconds of response time we're sacrificing to have those speed bumps up there on on Mass South the 23rd. Thank you. Mayor, no one else has indicated they want to comment on this item. Mayor Finkeldye, um, bring it back to the commission. Um, Chris brings up an interesting point there. Any any thoughts on, the, on that location? I know it, there are different speed bumps than some other like locations. Well, one of the things, uh, like you say, different speed bumps, some of them have pass-throughs where we can go through. Uh, we have a policy that says that we don't drive any more than 10 miles per hour of the posted speed limit. And so if it's 30 miles per hour, the most any of our apparatus would go would be, be 40. And uh, conversely, as the speed limit goes up. And so also, as we look at uh, different response strategies to different locations, we may pick a different route to go knowing that those might be there. And so particularly coming from that way, we may come down Barker and then come onto the halls uh, into the campus that way as well. But it would have an impact and slow us down a little bit, but it's, it's as he said, negligible five to six seconds. And uh, obviously the smaller trucks can get up to speed a little bit quicker than the large trucks, but uh, we're normally able to overcome that. Mayor Pinkelot, thank you. Other comments from commissioners? This is Commissioner Ananda. Um, having spent most of my life as an F1 half um, with my dad as the fire chief of our community for more than 30 years, um, I think that he is very impressed um, every time I talk about uh, the fire department here. Um, and I know that it's really admirable, the, the accreditation that you have and the work that you do to maintain that on a regular basis. Um, 
And, and, you know, I think that speaking to the mayor's comments around leadership development, a large part of the reason that I'm in public service is because of the example that he set for me and my community and the commitment to the community. And I know the commitment that you all to have to your community um, in making sure that you can safely respond to our residents when an emergency occurs. So I really appreciate that. And I want to acknowledge all of the work that it takes to maintain that. So thank you. Mayor Finkelbein, we'll see no other comments. Thank you all for being here in that report and, and uh, we look forward to the uh, optimization study when it comes back. Um, I'm sure it appears maybe McKinsey will have all sorts of data for us at that time. So we will look forward to that and uh, appreciate all your work. Okay, um, moving then to commission items. Any commission items? This is Commissioner Boley. I just had a couple of comments on the parks and rec topics. Um, I went walking out on the uh, levee yesterday and it was in great shape after the rain. I was amazed how walkable it was. So thanks to parks and rec for the maintenance that they're doing on that. Um, the other thing on parks and rec would be, been hearing a lot about pools. And it's just, I want to just restate how significant pools are to our community and, and we really need them to be open. So, thanks. Mayor Finkley, any other commission items? That takes us to the city manager's report. Craig? Thank you, Mayor. Uh, City Manager Craig Owens. There's four items on here um, this evening. Uh, the first one is just a uh, response to a, a community member that had asked about mobile, uh, mobile food vendors. Uh, so we gave you some history and background on that subject. Um, hopefully that's useful. Um, the uh, second item was um, just a title title updates that uh, followed some um, some updates that we had done in the police department um, several months ago. These are the uh, last ones recommended and uh, and there's no financial implications on that. And then um, the utility billing report and future work sessions. So happy to answer any questions you may have. Mayor Finkley, any questions for Craig? Seeing none, this is a public hearing item. If any member of the public would like to speak on this item, please raise your hand using the raise your hand feature. Or if you're present, let Sherry know. She'll call upon you. Ms. Flowers? Yeah, I just have a quick question. Um, I saw about um, on the city manager report about, I guess next, next week's a special consultant uh, study. I was just wondering if, if we can get the study results like available to the public like as soon as possible and if they're actually posted anywhere right now i i would just like to be able to look at it before like the end of thursday night thank you there's no other comment on this item mayor finkel i thank you Sherry, um, it probably is based on Chris's comments. I would note that um, we do have a special meeting next week for those watching. It starts at six o'clock 
and um, I believe the only thing on the topic, only topic on the agenda, will be the um, the the police um, consultant report. Craig, do you have an estimate of when it might be ready to be um, presented? I assume by Thursday at least, but I don't know if yeah. anytime prior. City Manager Craig Owens. Well, anytime prior is tomorrow, so um, we, <laughs> we will try and um, try and get that out as soon as we can. Our our normal schedules get stuff out on Thursday afternoon, and I think we'd be um, interested in making that that time frame uh, for the general public and for the commission to get it. Um, I think we're in the neighborhood of 130 pages, but like a lot of these, there's uh, summaries and then there's a lot of addendum and attachments. So we're we're working to get those finalized and, and we'll get out to you and to the public. Um, the other thing to your comment, Mayor, uh, is we may have an additional item um, with the um, potential of the um, public health orders being amended or um, or removed. We It may have implications on our meeting procedures, so we're still looking at that, but we may have an additional item that would be just a very much administrative, but just to make sure that we have the right processes in place uh, to continue with the meetings uh, and still in legal compliance. So I wanted to give you maybe a heads up on that. Uh, we'll know uh, by tomorrow uh, how we deal with that. Thank you for that. Any other comments on the city manager's report? If not, we'll look at the calendar before we move to the executive sessions. Any comments on the calendar? Seeing none, um, just again for the, the public, we have two executive sessions. Um, we'll move into executive session, go into that for 20 minutes, come back um, and take action if need be, if, if there is any, and then um, go into a second executive session, come back and then adjourn. So. I look for a motion on executive session number one. Mayor? Yes. Commissioner Ananda, um, if I could, before we go into our first executive session, if we could have five minutes from when we adjourn into that to when it begins. Um, I don't know if we need to publicly state that, but I need to relocate um, because of the hour. And I, I apologize for that. No, that's fine. Um, I think maybe procedurally it'd be best maybe you take the five minutes now and then do the motion just so we'll go in compliance. Is that okay? Whatever is best. I think so, just so we get the timing right. So let's go ahead and take a five minute break. We'll come back and then have the motion. Um, look for a motion to adjourn into executive session. This Commissioner Bowley, I move we approve a motion to uh, recess into executive session for approximately 20 minutes to discuss privileged legal communications from the city's attorneys regarding pending litigation pursuant to KSA 75-4319B2. The justification for the executive session is to keep attorney-client privilege matters confidential at this time. The City Commission meeting will resume in its virtual format in accordance with resolution number 7360 at the conclusion of the executive session. Commissioner Larson, second. 
Mayor Finkelauer, we have a motion by Commissioner Bully, a second by Commissioner Lawson. Commissioner Bully? Aye. Commissioner Lawson? Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. Commissioner Ananda? Aye. Mayor Finkelauer, aye. Passes 5 to 0. We will return at uh, 9.58. Um, I don't see him here. I can send him the... Yeah. Link. Let me see if he's at the right meeting. Maybe he went to the other meeting. <laughs> there it goes. Ah, here we go. Mayor Finkelai, sorry about that. Got stuck in the wrong room there. Um, we are back and have nothing to report. Everyone else beat me back, but here I am. So now we'll look for uh, uh, a motion for the second executive session. Ms. Commissioner Bowley, I move we recess in the executive session for approximately 15 minutes to discuss employer-employee negotiations pursuant to the employer-employee negotiations exception as set forth in KSA 75-4319B3. The justification for the executive session is to keep employer-employee negotiation matters confidential at this time. The city commission meeting will resume in its virtual format in accordance with resolution number 7360 at the conclusion of the executive session. Mr. Ananda, second. Mayor Finkeldye, a motion by Commissioner Bully, a second by Commissioner Ananda. Commissioner Bully? Aye. Commissioner Ananda? Aye. Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. Commissioner Lawson? Aye. Mayor Finkeldye, aye. We'll return at 10 15. Mayor Finkeldye, we are back and we have nothing to report. And with that, I think we're at the point of adjournment. Look for a motion to adjourn. Mr. Commissioner Bully, I move we adjourn. Commissioner Nanda, second. Mayor Finkeldye, a motion by Commissioner Bully, a second by Commissioner Nanda. Commissioner Bully? Aye. Commissioner Nanda? Aye. Vice Mayor Shipley? Aye. Commissioner Lawson? Aye. Mayor Finkeldye, aye. Passes five to zero. See you next week at six o'clock. <laughs>